Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough for you, if they don't. Today is February the 7th, 2014, and this is episode 1297 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we've got a good one for you today. Uh, it is what day? Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK is the number to call. Um, I've been saying 40% of calls get through. Call volume has been up lately. I'd say we're probably down at 20%. Um, so if you have called in more than three weeks ago at this point and you don't hear yourself on the air as of today, you probably want to recall that 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 call in. It probably means that you've gotten shoved off the backside. And the truth is, I don't even get to screen all the calls. Once I find enough calls that work that meet the criteria, um, I kind of push back from there. Just of a, t a time issue, uh, guys. So uh, please consider making your calls again. It's pro probable that you did a great call that I would answer, but I just didn't have the time. Anyway, um, still calling in is a lot better way to get on the air than, than emailing in. You know, I get uh, probably 30, 40 calls a week. I get probably 200 emails a day that are legitimate, real emails on important subjects. So that just gives you the ratios there to consider a Monday show versus a Friday show, how hard it is to get on. Before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is um, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, you'll find it at sawtac.com. Uh, Veteran-owned, veteran-operated in the wilderness of the Sawtac, uh, the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho. That's why they call it Sawtac. Uh, and I mean, you've got it all, man. I mean, you got Bagpole magazines, Maxpedition bags, everything else you can think of. The awesome manly titanium spork. If it's tactical, they got it. Check them out today. Sawtac.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home is a magazine I've been reading since 1993. That, that should tell you something about how, uh, how much I really do endorse Backwoods Home Magazine as a sponsor. Uh, they are somebody I have bought from over and over and over again. They were kind of my reconnection to my roots when I got out of the Army back in 93, and I found them on a bookshelf at a Barnes & Noble at a mall that was walking distance from my apartment. Uh, and I was kind of dead broke at that time, and I'd walk down there and grab a coffee and read a bunch of books and magazines, and that was the one I always read. Today I get to actually work with some of the people that were writing for them all the way back then because they're loyal to their people. You know, like people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera and Jackie Clay. Um, just awesome, awesome folks. Uh, check them out today, backwoodshome.com. Um, next up, I always mention one uh, discount vendor of the day from the MSB today, the Victory Seed Company. Figured I'd mention them. 10% off all your orders at Victory Seed Company. Now is the time to get your seeds planted for spring. We talked about that earlier this week. Just one of our many discount vendors. Backwoods Home Magazine and Sawtac also have discounts for you in the benefits section of your MSB. So consider joining the Member Support Brigade today. Um, there's just a, a small example right there of all the discounts I've negotiated for you. Um, this afternoon, I'll be putting out a new discounter, Conflicted, the game. For, it's uh, from survivallogics.com. It's a card game on survival uh, scenarios, and it's awesome. And they have version 2 coming out. They're sending me a, a uh, kind of a beta version, I guess, uh, 
right now. And uh, I think next week they'll have the second version out, and you get, guys get discounts on everything they sell. So uh, that's coming next, too. If you want to join the Member Support Brigade, you can help support this show at 18.3 cents an episode by doing so and get all these great discounts and other benefits. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on benefits. Not click, click on benefits. Click on members, and you can join from there. Sorry, I don't know why I'm a little bit off today, guys. Uh, but uh, but do consider joining the member support brigade. It does help us do the work that we do around here uh, for you guys. Bring the show to you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, shows run from an hour to three hours a day, depending on the content. These shows on Friday, these take a lot of work. We usually put you know two hours, three hours of, of content out on a Friday, and that re- that re- is uh, the result of about eight hours of, of full on work just to produce this one episode. And the MSB is you know the one product we actually sell here. I don't sell anything. For those of you who are new to my show, I don't really sell anything. I have a gear shop. It's run by Kelly John Doe. Um, they take a very small license fee uh, from very very small. And uh, basically, it's his business. I set him up with his business. Um, I don't sell anything except memberships. And whenever I have somebody come to me and say, "Hey, would you do a affiliate deal with me? Would you if you if you sell one of these, I'll give you thirty bucks or forty bucks or whatever." I always try to flip it around and say, "Hey, look, I sell memberships. Give that discount to my audience." Sometimes they do it. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're like worried about their street price or whatever, and they don't get that it's a private members-only area and only people that can log in and what have you. But that's what I do, guys. I negotiate these deals for you. That is my business model. And every once in a while, I just like to remind you that that is how I do business around here. Uh, it is episode 1297. Let's look at what happened in 1297. A name I'm sure you've heard. William Wallace, Braveheart. Yep, this is the the the, the probably the pinnacle of Braveheart's uh, actual historical uh, time, because uh, it did go downhill after this, as we will see soon. But Braveheart wins at Stirling Bridge. In order to save money, the English forces attack the Scottish forces straight across the bridge rather than fording the river and outflanking them. The English will pay a heavy toll for their frugality. 5,400 English troops will clear the bridge, but William Braveheart Wallace and Andrew Moray will cut off their escape and butcher them. William Wallace will become the most hunted man in Scotland, but they won't catch him for several years yet. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together. King Edward I of England should have never sent the king's treasurer, Hugh the Cressingham, to lead his forces. A bookkeeper will choose the cheapest way to fight rather than the best way to fight. Hugh de Cressingham was killed in the battle, and his skin was used to make souvenirs. So they skinned him, and they made souvenirs out of his hide. Um, you know, I, I agree with Alex's take, and I think it's maybe bigger than that, that like, you shouldn't send, you shouldn't let politicians make, uh, real military decisions. Like, the way our constitution is set up, it is a president that decides that we are going to take military action, but they should set the objective, well, here's what we need to do, here's why we need to do it, make the case, get Congress to declare war, which hasn't happened since World War II, by the way. Um, it, we, we've not had a constitutional war since World War II, guys. Just, just, just a little, Civics lesson there. Not a single war has been fought uh, truly under the constitutional guidelines. A declaration of war, congressional approval, clear objective of the war, prosecution of the war, fulfillment of the objective, and exiting of the war through a treaty. That is the only way this nation is supposed to go to war. There's ways around it. That's what we've done in every instance since World War II. And that's why they've never quite been decisive, ended, Wars that people understood. 
Um, so that's that's part of it. But in that way, once the war is handed to the general, I think it's you know a congressional and presidential oversight. But the decisions need to be left to the military. But my other side of that is the best wars are the ones we never fight. Um, World War II is hold, held up as the classic example where libertarians are wrong, where we had to go and be an aggressor in that war because if we weren't, all types of horrible things would have happened, and that includes the European theater when it was the Japanese that attacked us. Like Some people would say, well, what libertarian principle would have been then you go to war with Japan, you ignore Europe. Um, that's ignoring World War One. Without World War One, there would not have been a World War Two. There would not have been a rise of Adolf Hitler. There would not have been a rise of Benito Mussolini. Um, and you would have never had probably a Cold War that followed. The Iron Curtain under Stalin all goes back to World War One. And if we would have stayed out of World War One, it's most likely that the same could be said. That Europe would have had to settle its own troubles and its own problems and would not have had a taste for another war. But we intervened, and years later we paid the, the piper for that one. Guys, I want to tell you, I think the truth about World War II and World War I, they should just be called the World War. Because the time between World War I and World War II was really not peace. It was more of a ceasefire. Anyway, with that, let's not be so somber on Friday, Friday, Friday. Let's go ahead and take your first call now. Hey Jack, 229 Mick here with a question on converting an ornate pond with koi and a few unproductive plants in it into something that will actually give me some benefit. Uh, the details, I've got about a 5,500 gallon pond. Uh, the majority of it's in a 6 foot deep by about 10 by 10 basin that is currently populated with a number of koi. It pumps from there through a waterfall box over a stone waterfall and into an upper basin that's about 2 feet deep and maybe 6 by 6. Uh, the upper basin tends to gather the sediment as you might expect it would. Uh, the waterfall box also has filter media in it um, that I have to back flush every few months or so to get that sediment out of there. Uh, from there, it flows into a, a run from the top basin into a stone waterfall uh, that, again, goes back into the lower basin. My thoughts are that, first, I should be able to put a uh, more productive fish in there. I know tilapia is out of the question uh, because of the weather up here in Chester County, PA. Uh, they'd be dead as soon as fall got near, uh, let alone the winter. Uh, what other fish would be good uh, to grow and harvest in that situation? Uh, I do leave the pond running well into the winter. Uh, unless we have a really, really hard, long frost, it keeps running. Uh, so the the waste and uh, oxygen doesn't build, you know, it doesn't build up ammonia or anything, and it keeps oxygenated. Uh, in addition, it seems that the waste that does go into the system could be put to better use. Um, is there a way to benefit seasonally running the water through the hyd uh, hydroponic system or even filling the upper basin with stone to make it into some kind of, you know, ghetto hydroponic setup or something like that? Um, also, try to think through uh, harvesting the uh, sediment that does gather up there. Uh, try to bucket it back up, mostly water, things like that. Uh, it seems like that would be very rich um, and something to put into compost or put uh, in the garden or, or use somehow. So that's those are the things I'm kind of thinking through. If you have any input, I would love to hear it. Thanks so much for all you do. Well, that's a really great question, and um, there's a lot of different ways you can approach this. Let's start it from a vegetative thing. 
And understand that when you put fish into this system, um, you're going to have some issues with the vegetation. Uh, but the pond is large enough that you could sequester some of the plants to where the fish can't get to them using some screening or netting or things like that. And a lot of these plants that they put down really long root systems, it won't matter if the fish actually do eat the roots as long as they don't eat all the roots. So if the roots extend out and they're pruning the roots, that's really not a problem. Uh, but here's some different plants you could plant into a system like this. Arrowhead, Chinese arrowhead, taro, uh, violet stem taro, water celery, water chestnut, water cress, water locust, uh, I'm sorry, water lotus, uh, water mimosa, and water spinach. And these are all from Table 2 of uh, Perennial Vegetables by Eric Tosenmeyer. Um, and I, I think they're really, it's a really a great book to use as a reference for some basic um, use of a water feature in an edible landscape. Uh, the couple of the things that I would point out here is the ones I am really interested in trying next year myself are water chestnut. I really wanted to do water chestnut last year, but it was too late in the year to order any. I need to go ahead and get them ordered very, very soon. Um, it is the most productive plant by weight in the world. A weight-to-space ratio of water chestnut. There's nothing more productive than it. If you've had water chestnuts out of a can and thought, well, they're not really that great, you're right. They're not really that great. Freshwater chestnuts are amazing, um, great in stir-fries and things like that. Water celery is another one I'm really interested in. Uh, water mimosa and water spinach are both something that I'm interested in. I'm interested in doing some lotus. Lotus um, is pretty interesting There's, there's roots available from lotus, but my understanding is the flower itself produces edible seeds as well. Uh, so there's just some things you could put as plants into your pond. Uh, your koi definitely could be a problem with some of that, but again, if these things are done in net pots, pull off to the, uh, to, to, to sides of your pond and maybe put up on shelving that keeps them shallow where your fish can't really get at them too heavily. Um, you shouldn't have too much of a problem. And if stuff like if you do water mimosa, it's a, it's a cool floating plant with these little bulblets on it. And if they eat it, they eat it. I mean, the fish can have some too, right? Uh, and this is if you're eating a veget, if you're putting vegetation, eating fish in there. For fish, it's a tough thing. Um, you could do trout. Obviously, you could do trout. And they would be a very high quality, uh, very good tasting fish. The key with trout is you want to put them all in about the same age and size. Uh, they will cannibalize each other. Um, if they're really small and really large, they will simply fight in a small confined pond and tear each other up if they're just mismatched in size by too much. I don't know how your state will view this because some states, especially in the Northeast, it's a game fish or what have you. Um, but usually if you buy something from a hatchery, trout fingerlings or something like that, um, the receipt alone is, is good enough to keep you good to go in most instances, but you have to check your local laws and decide what you want to risk and not risk. The problem with trout is that they are slow growing. You're probably looking at two years to get sizable, harvestable fish, but hey, if it's every two years and you're restocking, it's not that big a deal. Uh, you're going to be dependent on a hatchery or what have you, so that that's uh, something you got going there as well. Um, the probably the most hardy easily to easy to acquire fish that you could just and people will say not to do this and I say you know you got a lot more things to worry about than whether or not this is a problem but it would be bluegill uh, bluegill are plenty hardy into the cold um, well fed they'll grow fast um, large bluegill over the over the length of eight inches are very very much a um, 
a, a positive ROI on, on meat to size ratio. There's a pretty good chunk of meat that comes off of them uh, once they're that big compared to how big they are. Um, the Probably the best way to eat fish like that, though, is not filleting them. It's scaling them, gutting them, and cooking them head, skin, tail on, and then pulling the meat off the bones and grilling them that way is just a, a great way to do them. Um, crisp the uh, crisp the skin, I guess, is kind of the way you want to do it. So foil and flip it a couple times so the skin gets crisped on high heat. Cook it quick, fast, not too long. And uh, where, where you're at, you should have no problem finding um, a plant called uh, sumac. And people are afraid of sumac. They think it's poisonous. Well, there's a poison sumac that's white. Then there's a you know staghorn and smooth sumacs that have red berries. You cannot confuse them. It is impossible if you know what to look for. You can look it up online and see what they look like, and you're just not going to have a problem with it. The red berries of a sumac are very citrusy, kind of like a pink lemonade type of flavor. And a couple sprigs of sumac and a couple sprigs of something like tarragon or uh, thyme uh, on, a, uh, on a fish of any kind is really, really nice. And those are things you could have right in your local area and make it totally local. So that would be how I would approach trout. And the thing about trout is they can be trained to feed on pellets. So you don't have to, you know, be trying to feed a carnivorous fish, minnows or something like that. Though if you have a local stream or something where you can go net minnows, it's a good augment to their diet uh, and they will tear them up. The other fish I'd say that would be most ideal in your climate is channel catfish. Uh, channel catfish are very cold hardy fish. Um, again, you want fish all the same size. You want to put them on automated feeding. You can supplement them with minnows and things like that. If you can find a good cheap source of goldfish, like you know the nine cent comets or something, uh, they'll be happy to make a meal of those as well. So those would be your you know your three kind of fish that are indigenous to your area that would work. All of them, especially in colder climates, are long growth cycles, probably two years, most likely. But again, if every other year you're getting fish out of your pond and restocking, it's not that big a deal. And if you can find a place to catch, you know, channel catfish on rod and reel, um, I don't know where you live if they have a limit on size. Some people view some states view channel catfish as game fish, and they have like a 12-inch minimum. Some consider them just a catfish, like a bullhead, and they don't have a minimum size. So you got to find out for for your own area, because uh, the problem there is. You're pushing it with channel catfish out of the wild at a foot. It's about one foot to 13 inches. They're still young enough. They will usually adapt to a small pond environment and being fed. Anything bigger than that, they won't. Ideal is about six to seven inches, but in many places, again, you would not be permitted to take that fish out of the wild, and you, you, you then you're back to needing a hatchery. Uh, that then that's the ideal size is fingerlings, um, and they are a pretty fast grower. But I, you would definitely be better suited growing them into a second season and harvest in the fall of your second season. Don't think you can't do tilapia in the north. Seriously. Um, the ideal setup would be a great big tank, so not even a great big tank, something like a 40-gallon tank with a divider, a male and a couple, or a couple three female tilapia. Hybrid fast-growing mix would be best, but you could do same species if you wanted to propagate your own young. Set that up as a fish tank in your house. Keep them separated except when you want them to breed. You need another big tank. But this could be out in a garage or something like that, relatively easy to keep heated, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 gallons. That's your grow tank. You breed your tilapia fry, just like starting seeds early. And then you move them into your 150-gallon tank. You bring them up to fingerling size, and you time that 
so that you're putting them out into your pond when your pond water is reaching a temperature in the mid-60s and not in danger of going back down. Put them into your pond, even in your climate, you should have no problem bringing them through in one season to harvestable size, especially if you're pellet feeding them. And that would be a much quicker, larger yield than any of the other species that I've recommended for you. And it absolutely can be done. And by choosing your species properly, you could set up a system that when you need to replace your breeders, you could, you could do so on your own. So one of the things you could do then is possibly have a female of a different mixed species to produce the majority of your fry for breeding. Uh, and maybe two males, and be able to crossbreed and, and, and breed direct for offspring if you wanted to. That would probably necessitate another tank. But that absolutely could be done. And, and you would have a very sustainable solution that you're able to produce for yourself. If you then added something that, to your system, like producing black soldier fly larvae, Uh, if you could do that in enough quantity, you'd be producing your own feed. If you could add composting worms, uh, so you have composting worms and black soldier flies, the composting worm reproduction rate's pretty high, and the black soldier fly larva rate's pretty high, you could get into a situation where you're feeding almost 100% um, to your fish out of your own production because they will also eat duckweed. So a small kiddie pool set out somewhere and inoculate with duckweed, will produce massive amounts, more than that they'll eat, and you can freeze surplus, and they will also eat other vegetables. So if you're growing lettuces and things like that, when they're getting to the point where they're going off, you just put, pull the whole plant out, clean the dirt off the roots, float the plant in there, and they'll eat that. So with tilapia, you actually could become sustainable even in your climate, but it would require some heated tanks for your breeders and as grow-out tanks. Think of it just like starting pepper seeds six to eight weeks before you can put them in the garden. Anyway... Hopefully that helps you. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Charlie from Woodstock, Georgia. And I was calling to follow up on the chufa that you have or the groundnut uh, growing in your stock tanks. Um, and uh, just curious as to whether or not it ever produced. Um, I also have a, a small pond in the back of my yard and uh, was considering adding some of that and uh, just very interested in seeing how it produced the nuts. Um, so love the show, and uh, keep up the good work. Bye-bye. So you notice I didn't mention Chufa in the last call because I knew I had this call queued up as well, and I didn't want to you know, steal the thunder of this call. So last year in my stock tanks, I grew a variety of things. I grew mint, um, I grew some sweet potato, and I grew some Chufa. And none of it was really done for productivity. It was done just to make sure there was something in the pond taking up nutrient. So the plants were there as, a, as an additional filtering mechanism. I have two 300-gallon round uh, tanks, six-foot round, two-foot deep. And uh, actually, they're closer to 400 gallons each. And uh, I think 390 gallons full, so they're probably sitting at 380 most of the time. And uh, I have about 50 goldfish, just plain Jane goldfish, cheap goldfish from the pet store in each one. And we had a few floaters, you know, when we first put them in, and we haven't had a floater in months. And right now with the cold weather, ice on top, they're all on the bottom hanging out, and no one's died. No one's floated. I put chufa into a gravel pot and grew it. It grew very well. It made an excellent aquatic plant. It did set tubers. They were rather small and an insignificant number per pot versus cleaning them out and were they worth it. 
does this mean they won't work? I don't know. And the reality is we didn't get the tanks installed, filled up, cycling, and planted until about July. Now, I could put chufa out in that pond, and I may do it again just to see what happens, put a few chufa nuts in a few pots and make it part of my plantings this year. By the end of March, there's no doubt it would be fine. Um, probably March 15th-ish, right? And it will start growing. So March, up until, you know, let's say Thanksgiving, is a hell of a lot longer of a time for it to grow, set, and, 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 and put density and nutrition into its tubers than July to November. So I, I, it might have been a growth length cycle. What I can tell you, though, is even what it did produce, my thought was it's sitting in gravel, You dump it into a bucket, you pick it up, you shake it and hose it off, and um, it'll be easy to get the chufa nuts out because the problem with chufa, and chufa's like a nut sedge, and it grows these little tubers. Turkeys love them. Pigs love them. They are a great fodder crop, and they are a great food plot uh, crop for turkeys and deer. Um, but when you go to harvest it, it, it's just a lot of little tiny tubers And a lot of work to get all the dirt off them and everything. They are grown commercially in Spain and Egypt. Um, Haracha is a drink that's made from It's kind of like a milky almond tasting stuff. It's really, really good. So my thought would be nice to have them. They can become invasive to a point of being a problem if you plant them in the wrong areas without any level of control. So a pot, gravel, everything would be great. I don't know if maybe they set more and bigger, if this would not be the case, but... With as much biological matter as accumulates in a gravel pot over a season, there's a lot of what you would call dirt in there. Um, so it, and the gravel was actually remarkably well held together by the root system, which was significant. So I don't know is the answer. It did grow. It grew fabulous. It put on tremendous roots. It spread out of the pots into the pond. It was a great nutrient filter, nutrient cycler. There's there's no doubt about that. Is it viable as a food crop in an aquatic system? I'm not sure. I will have to try again next year. Um, is it viable in your garden? If you're okay with the fact that you're never going to get rid of it, it's going to spread and keep coming back? Yeah, but that's what you're going to get out of it. It's going to keep coming back. It's like miniature sunchokes. Um, it is a phenomenal crop. If grown for commercial production with commercial harvesting equipment and something that modern agriculture in the United States should probably look at more, it is an exceptional fodder crop for turkeys and pigs. It is definitely something that I would consider finishing pigs on. It has a very high oil count content. That means it's a very high fat content. It also has a relatively high protein content. And even with domestic hogs, pretty much... If you, when you're ready to put them into an area with it, if you pull a few of them up and just leave them there, same thing with turkeys, once they see what it is, smell it and get into it, that's it. They start rooting it up. So if you had an area that you were going to finish your hogs on, it could definitely be a crop there. And you probably are going to have to reseed. You're going to probably want to pull some out before you let the hogs in. If you let hogs and turkeys into it, they may very well come close to eradicating it. You can't count on it being perennial if you heavily graze it, and they will totally disturb the soil and get you ready for your next planting. Uh, so I think for people running commercial turkey or, or, or hog, uh, it's an exceptional option planted in a conventional manner. Um, I think for conventional agriculture or permaculture, 
I don't know enough to, to recommend how to do it. I can tell you that it is a pain in the ass uh, for how small the tubers are uh, and how many you get and how much work you have to do to get a handful. It, it doesn't seem really worth it to me. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Charles in Minnesota. I've got an expert counsel question on fuel storage for Steve Harris. Steve, what is the functional difference between summer and winter, winter formulas for gasoline for those of us in cold climates? Also, how does it relate to storing fuel? I'm in southern Minnesota, and we see temperatures, not wind chills, of minus 20 or worse every winter. My concern is if I store summer formula fuel and need to use it during, during a severe cold snap in one of my vehicles or my little Yamaha 2K, I will have serious starting issues. My fuel is stored in NATO jerry cans in my detached garage and treated with stable if that's what I can find locally, but I do finally have some Pride G on order. Also, Minnesota gasoline is 10% ethanol if that makes a difference. Thanks for your help, Steve and Jack. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, I'm going to bring Steve up on this one. I haven't listened to his answer yet, but Jack is going to make a Spirico Domus prediction that's not going that far out on the edge. Before you get an emphatically awesome answer to the core question from Stephen Harris, he's probably going to snap a gasket over the concern about ethanol and the ethanol boogeyman. I actually have not listened to this one because when I heard the question, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do with it. So let's see what happens. And if Steve really goes over the top like he does sometimes, remember, he's not, he's just like me when I get upset and rant and yell over something you email me or a call you call in. He's not ranting at the caller. He's ranting at uh, the sector of society that continues to push a false doctrine on you. Cause I, I mean, I'm not sure when, but I'm saying right up front, right now, let's see what happens. And I swear to you guys, and I always keep my word to you, and I'm always honest with you, I have not heard this yet. Here we go, Steve Harris, answering your question, and Spirico says, snapping the ethanol gasket once again. Charles in Minnesota, thank you for calling into the expert panel. This is Steve Harris to answer your question. First, I have to address the comment that you have ethanol in your gasoline in Minnesota. This is something I want to say to everyone, okay? Let's stop the damn witch hunt on ethanol gasoline. There's nothing wrong with it, okay? It is a witch hunt. In case you don't know what a witch hunt is, you have a story that there's a witch in your little town and someone gets sick. Well, that person got sick. Well, it must be the witch's fault. My cow died. It must be the witch's fault. It's been raining for five days. It must be the witch's fault. Same thing with ethanol fuel in small equipment, vehicles, 4x4s, quads. Oh, my my weed eater won't start. It must be the ethanol fuel. My 4x4 is having trouble. It must be the ethanol fuel. I had to take my vehicle slash anything in to get it fixed. Well, it must be the ethanol in the gasoline. I have a website called imakemygas.com. And on there, I show you how to make your own ethanol fuel, pure ethanol. And I show you how to mix this pure ethanol 50-50 with gasoline so it'll run in any vehicle. So if you think 10% is some type of issue, what about 50%? And I've been running it in vehicles just fine. In fact, I had one customer write to me, and he had a small lawn business. He ran all of his equipment. He ran his lawnmowers. He ran his weed eaters. He ran his chainsaws. 
off of 100% pure ethanol with no gasoline added at all. Now, take that and put it in your pipe and smoke it. So, guys, you know, let's, there there have been issues with some things with ethanol, and it, they are the extreme, extreme minority. Most of the things that are getting blamed on ethanol in gasoline is purely from the witch hunt. Now, winter fuel versus summer fuel. Winter fuel has something that's called a higher RVP, or reed vapor pressure. Which all this means is winter fuel wants to evaporate quicker and faster than summer fuel. And that's given to say both summer fuel and winter fuel are at the same temperature. The winter fuel would want to evaporate quicker. It's going to be putting off more vapors. The idea of this is such that in cold climates, it's easier to start your vehicle because the gasoline is evaporating in the cylinder quick, quicker. And, you know, you got a cold engine. You know, you got an engine at minus 30, and you're squirting gasoline in there. You know, it's gasoline doesn't burn, gasoline vapors burn. So that's the idea of the higher RVP in the wintertime. Now, the reason you have a lower RVP in the summertime is because of our wonderful friends at the EPA. It's solely done for emissions purposes, and that's not emissions coming out of tailpipe. That's gasoline evaporative emissions. So we can thank them for giving us uh, literally a thousand different blends of fuel for different states, for different laws, for different rules across the United States in the summertime, which raises our gasoline price. So thank you to the EPA. Now, I guess I would say it would be technically smart if you stored winter gasoline in Minnesota instead of storing summer gasoline. Now, that being said, storing no gasoline stinks, okay? So if it's summertime and you got stuff to fill up and fuel up, go ahead and fuel up your barrels with summertime gasoline. It'll probably work in the wintertime just fine. Now, if you do get into a situation where it's minus 30 and your summertime gasoline just won't start in your generator or won't start in your car for whatever reason, there's this little thing called starting fluid that comes in a can and you spray it into the air intake. What it is, it's uh, it's ether, and that has a very, very high RVP. It evaporates instantaneously at almost any temperature. So you spray that into your air intake, and the engine will start on the starting fluid, and then it'll suck in the gasoline into a nice warm cylinder, because as soon as it goes boom the first time, it starts getting warm. So your summer blend will work just fine in the wintertime if you use a little starting fluid. You might have to use a little starting fluid. You might not, also might not have to use a little starting fluid. But either way, a little starting fluid is something always you should have in your preparedness. Because I don't know about you, but I hate pulling and pulling on a generator. It always seems like no matter if the fuel is fresh, if it's just been in there, no matter what, if the generator has been sitting for a little while, the generator is going to take like eight or nine or ten pulls to get going. Even sometimes in my Honda EU2000i, it wants to be picky on starting. So I always have starting fluid around my generator, and I give it a little spray, and I start it, and I'll let it run on the starting fluid, and it primes itself with the gasoline, and it starts running right away. So that's a tip and a trick from me to you on how to get your generator and other things to run quickly, no matter what the temperature, no matter what the fuel. Just use a little starting fluid. (laughs) 
Great answer. And God, I called that one. I knew that was going to be. Uh, let me tell you what, guys. We've got a, another question for Steve Harris. I'm actually really interested in his answer on this next one myself. It's on, uh, it's on rechargeable batteries. Uh, and this is also, I have not listened to Steve's answer on this one yet, so I don't know what he's going to say. Uh, but uh, I'll let the caller ask the question, and I'll tell you that it's, it's something that I have not really had a good answer to myself yet. I bet you Steve does. Hey, Jack. This is Jess from Montana. I have an expert counsel question for Steve Harris. My question is, where can I get a good size C and size D rechargeable battery? I've taken years in Steve's advice and stocked up on both the Enloop AA and AAA, and they're working great. I've also purchased the adapters where you can put the size AA in and use those batteries in the C or D devices, but they don't seem to work very well. So I just wonder if there's an actual size C and size D battery on the market that, uh, that passes the Steve Harris slash Jack Spirico test. Thanks, Jack. Keep it up. Bye. Jess from Montana, thank you very much for calling in to the expert panel. This is Steve Harris to answer your question. C and D size rechargeables. Okay, now let's back up a little bit. The only rechargeables we're dealing with these days, and this is year 2014, uh, as far as AA, AAA, Cs, and Ds go, we are dealing with nickel-metal-hydride batteries, NIMH. And now there are two types of nickel metal hydride batteries. There's the old ones and there's the newer ones. The newer ones are sometimes called LSD for low self-discharge. Previous versions of nickel metal hydride batteries were famous for having a high self-discharge rate. They would discharge, you know, like 1% per day, and the new ones will discharge about 15% per year. So it's important for you to always try to buy and look for the low self-discharge nickel metal hydride batteries. These will also be called ready-to-use nickel metal hydride batteries as well as pre-charged nickel metal hydride batteries. So this will help you if you're looking at the store. Now, if you go to the store like Home Depot and you see the Energizer brand D-cell and C-cell nickel metal hydride batteries, don't touch them, okay? All they are is essentially the chemistry of a double-A nickel metal hydride inside of a D-shell. What you do is you flip it on the back, and you see how much energy, uh, what the rating is for the D-cell. It'll say like two or 3,000 milliamp hours. Well, that is the size of a AA nickel metal hydride battery. They're around, the ones you should be using are around 2,200 milliamp hours for AA nickel metal hydride batteries. Don't get into the game of buying the 2,900 or 2,800 nickel metal hydride batteries because it's a numbers game. They sacrifice internal surface area for more capacity, and the ones that are 2,900 milliamp hours, will you can recharge them 50 times. The Sanyo end loops that are 2,000 to 2,200 milliamp hours, you can recharge them up to 1,500 times. So that's just a little backup and background for you on nickel metal hydride batteries. Now you want to know about C's and D's. And of course you said you got the adapters for the double A's to slide into the C and D adapters. And of course they don't work very well because one is you're putting a double A amount of energy into something that has literally usually seven times more energy, a D cell alkaline battery. But um, so they always don't have a very good fit to them either, so they always don't work. But 
they're better than nothing. And if you're using AA batteries in a sleeve and like a radio, it would work okay. If you're trying to use AA batteries in a sleeve and a Maglite flashlight, they're not going to work very well at all. Of course, something is better than nothing. I'd almost rather you have nothing, but I, what I really want you to do is I want you to get the um, proper nickel metal hydride C and our D cell batteries. Now, these are listed on solar1234.com. I've had them up there since the very beginning. The brand of C and D cell you want to get is called Tenergy. That's T-E-N-E-R-G-Y. It's like energy with a T in front of it, Tenergy. And it's Tenergy Centura, C-E-N-T-U-R-A. And right in the Amazon description, it'll say LSD, nickel metal hydride rechargeable battery. It comes with uh, two batteries on a card, which is just what you're used to seeing in the store. And two D-cell batteries are about 19 bucks a piece. Yeah, the D-cell nickel metal hydrides are a little bit more expensive. Now, here's something else for you to realize about the D-cell, uh, the D-cell nickel metal hydride batteries. Um, a AA alkaline battery will be about 3,000 milliamp hours. A AA nickel metal hydride will be about 2200 milliamp hours. So they're about the same, okay? Now, a D cell alkaline battery is 14 to 16,000 milliamp hours, okay? A huge amount of energy. You know, six, seven times the energy of a AA alkaline battery, which is one of the reasons I like D cell alkaline batteries is because you can depend upon them for operating for a very long period of time. I like AA nickel metal hydride rechargeables and flashlights and other things because, and headlamps because you can recharge them and use them on a regular basis. But if you open up one of my emergency, uh, cabinets or emergency drawers in the house, the first thing you're going to find is a D cell, uh, alkaline flashlight, LED flashlight, because I know it's going to run for a couple hundred hours before I have to worry about it. So the D cells are the Tenergy Centuras. Uh, also up on solar1234.com are the C cells. It's listed in the same block. It says, it says D cell, blah, blah, blah. And it says C cell, blah, blah, blah. And it also says he click here for the low self discharge versions and click here for the low self discharge version of the C batteries. And now, how do you charge these? Well, also on solar1234.com, you will find the Tenergy Super Universal LCD Battery Charger. Okay? It's the T-9688. It will charge AA's, AAA's, C's, and D's, and 9-volt nickel metal hydride batteries. So it'll charge them all. Now, here's something to keep in mind. Whereas it might take only two hours to charge a double-A nickel metal hydride battery, it might take eight hours to 16 hours to charge your D-cell nickel metal hydride battery. Okay? It's just a lot bigger of a battery. So don't expect, you know, just take your D-cell and pop it in and go, 
well, the double A's recharge in an hour. Why won't the D cells? Because the D cells are big. Okay. If there was a lightsaber of batteries, it would be D cell alkaline batteries. And the next best thing would be D cell nickel metal hydride batteries. And like I said, I just advocate using the triple uh, A's and double A's because the devices are so prevalent and you get a good amount of life off of a double A nickel metal hydride battery anyways. Well, Jess, I hope that uh, answers your question and I gave you guys enough detail on all the differences and everything. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Don't forget all of my great shows I've done with Jack are on well, you can actually get to all of my websites now from Stephen1234.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N dot com. Sorry, S-T-E-V-E-N1234.com. Tripping over myself here. Thanks, guys. Call in some more questions. As always, I love them, and I love doing them every week for you. See ya. Bye. Well, I actually feel kind of good about that. I didn't know that Steve had CNDs on Solar1234.com, but when I looked through Amazon, the Tenergies were the ones that I thought looked like the best option of what's available. Uh, so, again, Solar1234.com is where you can get uh, a link over to where those batteries are. Steve does have a link to them on Amazon. If you're going to pick them up, be cool to Steve, man. Run over to Solar1234, click his link, and then that way, whatever you buy from Amazon, he'll get credit for. So one way of saying thank you for such great recommendations of products he's actually used. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack, how are you? It's John from New Hampshire. I uh, have a question about fodder systems. I'm setting up a fodder system right now, and uh, I've been reading about it online and checking some things out and uh, I've seen some concerns about a lack of nutrients um, because of a lack of nitrogen considering because it's not growing in soil and uh, I was wondering if maybe a solution to that was to make some kind of compost tea or something like that and maybe inject that into the system at some point and uh, I don't know I have some rabbits here and I have some buckets and I'm thinking about doing it let me know what you think let me know if there's any dangers there you know other than maybe some fun building up which I can deal with Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, I mean, my concern with compost tea is where's the compost from and what biological organisms are active in that compost. And with a simple dump system where you're dumping it two or three times a day, like the one I designed out of buckets, which is more of a sprouting system than a typical fodder system, might you be introducing the potential to cultivate some sort of a bacteria uh, that you would prefer not to cultivate? And I don't know the answer to that, yes or no. I do know that if I wanted to increase the... Um, fertility and the growth and the vibrance of fodder, what I would probably rely on is a, a, a fertilizer for um, hydroponics. I think that would probably be your safest bet there, but I could be wrong. You might be fine using compost tea. Um, I will tell you that you only get uh, about four rinses if you save your water from your fodder system before the barley makes it kind of skanky and you really don't want to use it anymore. It starts to smell. Um, the, the, the barley doesn't smell itself. The, the water does. It, it kind of becomes like a barley-stained tea. Uh, so what I usually do, I keep two buckets for water in my um, greenhouse, and about every fifth or sixth rinse I dump that water out, and I'm using about half a bucket, so five gallons per rinse. Uh, and I'll also soak barley in that water, too. So as I dump one bucket and it em it's empty, 
I throw my barley in it and put it underneath the drain at the bottom bucket and let it fill about halfway up. And I'll dump that other bucket through and throw it under there. And I'm usually starting one bucket a day. Some days like today, where I got lazy because we got like an inch global warming sitting on the ground outside. And it was cold and I didn't feel like it. I have to start two buckets today uh, to catch back up. As far as, you know, are the animals going to be deficient in any nutrients? I've talked to a number of people that are growing conventional fodder systems. They're using nothing but water and barley. And their animals are on a almost 100% fodder uh, in the wintertime with no problems whatsoever. I'm not saying it's the greatest idea in the world, but I'm saying people have done it without re reporting any type of nutritional deficiencies. Um, I'm a big believer that no animal should be fed a single thing as an exclusive uh, ration. I don't think that I would be healthy even if I ate one of my favorite things like ribeye steak. If I ate nothing but ribeye steak every day, Uh, I would stay alive, but I don't think I would be as healthy as optimally as I could. Uh, I think a great big spinach uh, salad just made from nothing but spinach and tossed with a little oil and salt and pepper is pretty damn good, too. I like other things in it, but for this purposes, let's just say that was all I was eating. Incredibly nutritious for me uh, with a little bit of oil on it. gives me some fat, so I'm not going to die from lack of fat. Uh, there's some protein in spinach, not complete enough, but I certainly wouldn't be healthy enough if I only ate spinach. So I don't think that our animals should be exclusively fed on one thing alone. So if you're doing with fodder what I do with fodder, which is use it as an adjunct to uh, their other rations. So my birds get a lot more off the land in the, the spring through the fall than they do right now because there's just less there for them. Uh, but they're getting some, plus they get a, a feed every day, plus they get some scratch, plus they get fodder. Uh, then you had a very well-rounded, very happy flock of birds or small animals or, or what have you. So I wouldn't really sweat it too much. And I can just tell you that I had that one gal on that does large-scale fodder for her animals. And she said her animals are almost on 100% fodder, again, uh, all winter long. And she's in uh, the mountains of Northern California. And where she's that's pretty sparse, and they're getting almost nothing that time of year from what she said off the land. They might be getting more than she thinks, but they're not getting a ton. So I would just say with fodder systems, don't think of them as a replacement for your food. Think them as an adjunct to your food, and it will reduce your food consumption. Um, my birds were pretty much killing a full feeder of feed a day, which can get expensive after a while. And now I'd say a full feeder is lasting them uh, probably a week because I don't fill it anymore because they, they're jerks. And when it gets really low, a lot of times um, it, the, I feed them a crumble. And when it gets down to where like all the big crumbles are on the bottom and the little ones are on the top, the jerks bust the feeder open and mess it all up. So I give them like a scoop at a time. And sometimes I only give them a scoop every other day. Um, I have less birds now, but I still have a pretty substantial flock. And the geese eat a lot. Um, so I, I think what I'm doing works really well. Uh, and if you're going to feed them a scratch feed, try to find a really good quality scratch feed. I know you can't get Texas Naturals up there, but that's what I use down here. And their scratch is unbelievable. It does not look like chicken scratch feed. It looks like some whole grain crap you'd make a piece of bread out of. It's it's unbelievable. Black oil sunflower and some peas mixed in with it and red millet and rye and wheat. You can tell both of those are in there. It, it, little bits of cr uh, cracked corn in it. No soy whatsoever. Uh, there's definitely some millet in there, It's uh, and they love it. They, they go absolutely crazy on it, Over other than the pea things. Whatever those pea things are, uh, they don't tend to eat those as much. But everything else, they just hammer. 
Uh, and also consider with your fodder, you can do things other than barley. Uh, I found that they really like sprouted sunflower seeds, black oil, just cheap. Black oil, sunflower, like you buy to feed birds, but don't let it grow very much. As soon as it's got a little sprout out of it, feed it to them then. They go crazy over it like that because it's soft, it's easy to digest. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Greg from the Houston area in Texas. Quick question to follow up to last week's question regarding swales, and that is if there's any ideal ratio between the height of the swale and the depth of the ditch that makes up the bottom of the swale. Uh, details uh, on your place there in Texas, you've got rock that prevents you from digging very deeply, but uh, here at my place down in the Houston area, I uh, have very deep topsoil and could make them as deep as the like. You know, I'd like to know if there's any ideal ratio between the height and the depth um, and any kind of practical considerations that might go along with that. Thanks, as always, for a great show. Hope to hear from you soon. Okay, for those that have never heard of a swale before, ditch on contour. So a ditch, if you think of a contour map, you got a contour line, the ditch would be right on that line. It's completely level. The front of the ditch is level, the back of the ditch is level, the middle, bottom of the ditch where the water goes is level, water comes down great, sits in the ditch, it doesn't flow, it stops, seeps into the land. This is an irrigation method. It's a tree-growing system primarily. It can be miniaturized to do other things, but it's really a forest establishment system. And it either severely reduces uh, or actually eliminates the need for irrigation, depending on your climate and what you're growing and your soil type. Just So swales 101 there. Um, now, the ratio. And what he's saying is, if I'm going to make a swale that's six foot wide, and I can go as deep as I want, how deep do I really want to go? And it's a very good question, and the answer would probably be no more than two feet. A one-third ratio is about what you're looking for. So if you if you watch Jeff Lawton's stuff on food forest establishment, whenever he's talking about mainframe swells, big swells they're putting in, they're putting a, a swale in that's usually three meters wide by one meter deep, and there's your one-third ratio. I want to talk about why, though, because this will help you construct good swales. When we think of ditches in America, we think of ditches that move water. And a ditch has a very rounded shape to it. It's deep, and it's like a cup. And it's designed to hold a lot of water and move it because you're worried about the volume going downhill fast. And by going deep and wide and rounded, the ditch is more stable and is eroded less by the water moving through it. Okay? If you made a ditch that was wide and flat, then the ditch has a much better chance of reaching its capacity and overflowing with water. So that's why you see our ditches, our bar ditches, are relatively deep, high volume, move a lot of water fast away from, from us. That's not what we want with a swale. We want to hold a lot of water, and we want to slowly infiltrate it into the landscape. So we need a different shaped ditch. An ideal swale, the center which in when I say the center of the ditch is what I'm talking about now, is going to be about 60 to 70% of the ditch should be considered like the bottom. In a perfect swale, that bottom would be flat like a sidewalk. It wouldn't have any rounding to it at all. And you'd have a very slight, very gentle slope up in the front to your berm. And of course that's going to get more severe because the berm itself is there. And in the back you'd have a very gentle back cut. A very gentle slope back. so Because your water now is not moving linearly. 
It's moving into and through the swale system. So it's going into the swale, setting in the swale, and soaking into the mound on the downhill side and into the ground on the downhill side and pluming through the landscape. So now we're taking the water, and instead of running across the land, we're running it through the land. And when we exceed capacity, we have overflow points called sills that allow for that. We're going to leave that out of today's discussion. So the reason for the one-third ratio, and it's not it has to be, it should not be more than, all right? So no deeper than one-third the width. If you go to three feet, let's say you do a six-foot swale, three feet deep by six foot wide, okay, it's a deep swale, you have a severe ditch. And your water coming into it's coming down a severe drop, and it's going into a severe uh, embankment in the front, and it will erode much faster. Even though you've taken more dirt out, your swale will not remain functional as long. It'll be harder to maintain. It'll be harder to deal with. Personally, I believe you can do a beautiful swale if you have the space in a big enough machine, a nine meter wide swale, not nine meters, I'm sorry, a, a, a nine foot wide or three meter swale, even at two feet deep, I think is almost ideal. You're going to have a very gentle back cut. You're going to have a very gentle front, and you're going to get a very big berm. So, so nine feet by two feet in depth, where you could go three. So even, even taking that down from, from a one-third ratio, uh, what are we down to there? About, a, a, about close to a fifth. You're getting close to around a one-fifth ratio. I, I think that works. But if you go more than a third of your width in depth, you're going to end up with a hole versus a swale. And I'm not saying it won't work. What I'm saying is it will erode faster and it won't function as well as it could. There's two things we're thinking about. One is the ditch and its functionality, but the other is the berm. We're going to pull the soil out of the swale and create a berm, and we're going to plant into and downgrade of that berm. Okay? We want the berm to be substantial. Now, again, the berm is not what holds the water in the swale. Please understand that. At the sill, you take the berm away. So you have a space, let's say, six feet wide, nine feet wide, depending on how big the swale is, as an overflow point. But the water overflows there because it comes above the grade of the land. It comes above the front lip of the ditch, and it cascades over gently because we have a big, wide uh, sill. If we did a very small sill, it would erode and, and make a big mess. But by spreading it out over nine feet, 12 feet, six feet, all depends on how much water we're holding, it's very gentle and passive, and the water sheets over gently. Okay, so we want that berm to be substantial because it's a big—it's like a big giant bed to plant into. So the problem, if we go too shallow, isn't just how much water we can hold. How much berm do we get? Right, because we don't want to bring material in for the berm. We want to use the material we have on site. So that's a big part of it too. I want to go deep enough to hold a lot of water and to get a big berm. But I don't want to go so deep as to create an erosion problem for myself and a steep drop-off into the swale. Two feet by six feet, I almost feel that's too deep. Our swales are about a foot deep. I would have loved to have gone about 18 inches. But even looking at the, the way that they're shaped, if they had been two feet, you almost get too severe. You can get a lot closer to your one-third ratio and get a nice shape when you move the swale out to nine meters. When you're using a smaller machine because the land calls for it, because it's what you have, and you're doing a smaller ditch, think 
think I'm backing off that even a little bit. Um, I think there's a lot of potential to do things with very, very wide and relatively shallow to width swales. I think a big machine could do a 12-foot wide swale one foot deep and have a lot of effect there. And you could grow in that swale as well as in the berm on the downhill side. You could crop that 12-foot section with, with some type of pasture and actually graze through the bottom of the swales. Your animals would then deposit, and I would not do cattle in there so much because you're getting a lot of divots then, and it's not going to maintain itself as nicely, but, but moving something through there like birds, so chickens, just scratching the bottom up a little bit and, and pulsing chickens and geese behind each other through a wide, flat swale. Um, they're depositing all their waste in the bottom of the swale. Every time there's a rain event, it's creating a nutrient cycle downstream. So there's a lot of ways we can play with it going less aggressive in the depth. But I think when you go too deep, you ruin everything. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chet Manley calling you here from uh, Seattle. And I had a question for Brian Black or uh, Frank Sharp Jr. Uh, I was wondering what would they choose or what is their preference or even the pluses and negatives of the Kimber Solo Carry as a concealed carry handgun versus a Glock 19 Gen 4. Um, my reasoning is, I, I really don't want to go with one or the other, um, and then it's slightly uncomfortable in a sense, or it bulges out or something, and over four weeks, a month, two months' time, uh, it just nags on me at five in the morning uh, when I'm leaving for work, and I just choose to leave it on the desk instead of carry it with me, and then it defeats the whole purpose of carrying at all, because uh, it's uncomfortable. And uh second question is, what are their favorite assault rifle for 7.62 NATO? Um, I know that the 5.56 round in uh, some areas here is banned because it's considered a inhumane just because it doesn't put the deer down. And um, uh, I kind of was thinking about switching up to a 7.62 NATO assault rifle. Hopefully I'll never have to use something like that and that kind of stopping power, um, but... It's, uh, since money is not necessarily an issue anymore, um, I want to know what they think and uh, kind of, again, the pluses and negatives versus a 5.56. Thanks. Well, I decided to send this one to Brian um, because I, I, I don't know what his experience or did. I do know because I did listen to Brian's answer. Uh, I didn't know what Brian's experience with Kimber was, but I do know that he's been a fan of SIGs, and I know that he's recently, uh, within I guess the last year or so, switched uh, to primarily carrying a Glock. So I thought that since the, he actually switched into the Glock, uh, that he might have a, a, a pretty interesting take on this. So I chose uh, to send this to him versus Frank Sharp. So uh, let's hear what my buddy Brian's got to say. Hey, Jack, it's Brian Black from ITS Tactical. Just wanted to follow up with a question, couple of questions from Chet in Seattle. Um, first question was what, what my preference was as far as a Kimber solo carry or Glock 19 went. Um, my big take-home with this, uh, Chet, is that definitely get out there and find somebody or find a shop that's got these two guns and that will allow you to really get a feel for them in person. Um, and that's really what um, the big take-home is for me is, is really just finding out if uh, – if it's going to work for you, because it really is a personal choice, especially when you're considering something that you're going to conceal carry for multiple hours in a day. Um, I would, I would really just get hands on with it, get a feel for it. Um, obviously, you know, a shop might not want you to, to, uh, you know, throw it in a holster and 
you know, wear it like you would a concealed carry gun. But um, at the same time, you know, uh, it's really going to be comes down to personal preference. I mean, they're both nine millimeters. Um, I really don't have much experience with the Kimber solo carry, but I do carry a, a Glock 19 um, for my concealed carry gun, and um, it's been great for me. I really like the, uh, you know, I came from a Sig P225. Um, which was a single stack nine millimeter magazine when I went to a Glock 19, and you know I kind of resisted Glocks for a while. They, I thought they were kind of they didn't really live up to their hype, but uh, you know when I got more experience with it, I really saw some of the uh, the positives to it, and uh, just started seeing a lot more negatives with the Sig. I think Sig is still a great platform, but uh, you know things like the uh, the double action first round uh, squeeze on that is uh, was kind of a kind of a downside to it as I started to to get hands on with the Glock. So, I've really kind of become comfortable with it. I like the fact that the uh the frame of it doesn't have any, you know, kind of uh you know, it's got really nice clean rounded edges. There's nothing really kind of sticking out of it, so it's kind of perfect for a concealed carry. Um and then also, uh you had a couple of questions when it came to uh kind of 762 platform. Uh also kind of the the positives and the negatives over 556 and you know, I would say that uh, I've I've really kind of taken to uh, the 7.62 and the AK uh, in that pla- in that round size um, lately because of the help of you know awesome guys in the industry like uh, Billy Cho and Jim Fuller who have really kind of shown me the the beauty of the AK and what it can do um, in terms of a platform. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of negative connotations that are kind of surrounding the AK as you know the weapon of our enemy or so on and so forth, but um, it all really comes down to the fact that the AK is just reliable as hell and it's bombproof. Um, there's not a lot you can do to break an AK. I mean, I think it's just a, it's a great all-around gun. Um, obviously, the stopping power um, in, in that round is, you know, much bigger when it comes to round size over the 5.56. Um, but you know, there's benefits to the 5.56 too. I mean, it's a, you know, the AR platform is great. Um, you know, to be honest, you can kill something just as easily with a 22 and a well-placed shot as you can with a 7.62 or a 5.56. So, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes it's semantics too. So um, get something that you like and something that you're comfortable with. And um, I would definitely uh, use Rifle Dynamics as a resource if you can, um, if you're considering a, an AK. I think they build some of the best AKs around and, you know, they'd be happy, I'm sure, to uh, to talk with you about that over the phone too. They've got great customer service, and I just really can't recommend them enough. They're they're great friends of mine, and um, hopefully uh, they can answer some questions for you too. So, hopefully that helped out, and uh, thanks for the question. Uh, I have a, a little bit of follow up on that one, uh, adding to Brian's great observations. There, the uh, first one is on the handgun. Um, I, I, I like the Kimber and I like the Glock. I think both are more than capable of being carried comfortably. And I agree with going somewhere where you can actually use the weapons. There's a place in Plano, Texas called the Bullet Trap. They have a tremendous selection of, of weapons that you can rent to go fire on their firing line. And, uh, the, the, you could, you could rent both of those there to shoot. And you can probably, if you look around, find a store big enough to actually shoot them. And I would, I would pick the weapon that is more comfortable for use as a weapon. And you can then find a solution to carry it if you're married to those two. I don't mean to make this more complicated for you, 
but I would have to say that the most comfortable to carry nine millimeter that I've ever had my hands on, and it's surprisingly comfortable for me to shoot anyway. For me to shoot, I'm not saying it will be for anybody else, but it's it's the Caltech PF9. And Caltech being a low cost gun comparatively to a lot of other guns sometimes gets a bad rap. But you never see anybody with a blown up Caltech or Caltech that just doesn't work or what have you. And if I was going to do some training on a combat course or something like that, um, you know, a, a gun that only holds seven in one and and what have you, I I I don't know how well it would do shooting for several hours a day for four days in a row. But let's be honest about everyday carry self defense. If you need more than eight rounds, you've probably got a problem. Uh, beyond the problem you already had to need the dadgone gun in the first place. So if I had a choice between carrying comfortably or not carrying at all, and one of my choices was a Keltec, I would consider them. Uh, th there's some other options, like the PF32, which is a 32 APC. It's an even smaller frame, and, and it carries even nicer. But I, I think you're getting the edge of effective uh, firepower there. But the Keltec uh, 9mm is, is a good option if you want the slimmest, lightest, affordable option that there is out there. It's, it's, it's pretty nice. Um, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think Brian's carried that weapon, uh, once or twice, uh, uh, before as well. Um, on the rifle, I agree with everything that Brian said, except, uh, you're kind of almost missing here the whole point that you're talking about putting a deer down. I honestly believe that even if you live where an AR platform or an AK platform is legal for deer hunting, It is not an ideal deer hunting platform. I don't care what the round is. It just is not an ideal deer hunting platform. It's fine, especially for those of you that live in places with high feral hog populations, and you're going to set up a feeder, and you're going to get like four of you guys and, and put them in the sniper crosshairs and try to wipe out like 50 of them. The rate of fire is great and things like that. But I just think for the deer hunter... A purpose-built hunting rifle is a better option. Now, if what you're saying is, I want a rifle that's capable of taking deer if I need to, and I also really want it primarily a self-defense, an AK or an AR-10, uh, both are excellent. Excellent. And I'm with Brian that the AK offers, some, when you step to the 7.62, the AK offers some real reliability bonuses um, from a performance standpoint. But either will work. And the 7.62 NATO, which is almost almost a ballistic twin of the 308 Winchester, um, is a much better big game round. There's just no doubt. Either one is more than adequate on humans. Deer are not humans. I have seen things happen to deer uh, when shot that a human being would have crumbled into a, a pulp. And I've seen deer go for hundreds of yards with these with serious blood-gushing injuries that you don't even understand how the animal was able to move. Uh, they, they react differently, um, and a, a better anchoring round uh, can be found. That said, though, if you are using a 5.56 or the civilian equivalent of .223, Barnes makes a... Uh, a bullet for that round. It's either 55 or 60 grains. I don't remember which one, but it's their 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 bullet that is called a trophy bonded bear claw. And a lot of hunters used hand loads with that particular bullet for young hunters in Texas. 
because the 223 offers a very soft recoil. The young hunters are comfortable with it. And in Texas, unlike a lot of states, you can hunt a lot younger. I don't remember what the age is here, but in Pennsylvania it was 12. I know there's kids out in the deer woods here that are 9 or 10 years old with that. Uh, so even the 243 starts to push their limits a little bit for recoil. And every person I've talked to that's used that Barnes bullet in that 223 has had no problem anchoring whitetails, at least Texas whitetails. You're looking at bucks that run 120 to 140 pounds. I myself, even with that round, would be very cautious with these bigger deer. Like I remember in the Northeast shooting a doe one time that dressed at 180. It doesn't seem like enough, but it would be another option that you could have at your disposal, especially if you're a hand loader. I'm sure so. I think Federal Premium makes a round with that in it. Okay, so that would be another option. But I would really look, when you look at the fact that you can go to a gun show and you can pick up a nice used Savage Model 10 and 308 or something like that for a couple hundred bucks and throw, you know, an $80 decent Simmons scope on it with, uh, 4x4 four four mounts on it. You're going to pay for a good set of the 4x4s. Four I'm talking about, I can't think of who makes them. Right. Is it Weaver or Redfield? They're the ones with uh, the straps have uh, four uh, Allens on each strap. Uh, they're my favorite uh, uh, mounts. For You can pick those up for 40 bucks, and you've got into the whole thing $340. And you've got a true purpose-built hunting weapon. If you're going to be a hunter and you're going to go out and hunt deer and, and things like that, I would separate those two. Because then that other weapon also kind of doubles as a long-range sniper rifle if we ever get into the zombie apocalypse. But uh, otherwise, I mean, I agree with Brian completely on his take. I just, when you say deer, my whole approach to your situation changes. Because I know that I can hunt with an AR here in Texas, and I've never felt compelled to take an AR uh, to go shoot a deer. Not because of any bullshit, anti-gunner, slander, crap. Just because, you know, my bolt action, uh, you know, rifles are just more suited to me anyway to the job of hunting. And in the deer woods in Pennsylvania, where you can't even have a semi-auto, you know, I would prefer to use something like uh, the Remington, an old 760, 7600. I don't know what the hell they call the thing now, um, but a pump. Uh, action that's available in everything from 243 up to like 35 Whalen, 3006, 270 are ideal in that. Uh, or a lever gun, 330, 336C and 35 uh, Remington, uh, 3030 Winchester. Uh, I have a model 1895 Marlin and 44 Magnum. To me, those are all better deep woods deer calibers. Uh, in fact, I much prefer the 44 Magnum as a deer round in thick woods to, to just about anything else. Um, 4570 is a good option there too, but it's much bigger. Uh, it's expensive. It's not as available. Uh, and it's not that much more ballistically superior, honestly. Um, you know, in an 1895 with nine rounds of 44 mag, if you can't put a deer down with that, you got a problem. So just put a little thought in separating defensive weapon from dedicated hunting weapon. The universal weapon is for that world we hope we never enter where we have to do both with one. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Matt, Louisiana. I had a question for uh, Brian Black. I'm getting ready to start uh, building my house, and I was wondering if he had any uh, suggestions on securing your doors, um, your windows. Um, appreciate it. Thank you. 
Right, another question for Brian Black at ITS Tactical. Brian, what say you? I know this is a subject you've done a lot with, and uh, and uh, I know you'll have a lot to say on this one. Hey, Jack. Brian Black here with ITS Tactical. I wanted to just give you a quick response, or it may be a little more lengthy than I planned because this is a subject I'm pretty passionate about. Um, just a response to uh, Matt in Louisiana who asked some questions about what to put on doors and locks during uh, the building phase of a home uh, for extra security. Uh, Matt, first of all, thanks for the question. Um, I really appreciate it. This is this is definitely an area that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about, and um, I'd love to, to give you some tips for this. So um, first of all, when you're in the, the phase of actually building a house, it's it's a it's a lot better position than somebody that's already an existing homeowner because you know you do kind of have creative license over what you're putting in so you know it's a great time to to make sure you're you're not a uh, you know buying twice you're putting in stuff that's already kind of you've kind of already thought about this stuff beforehand so hopefully this gets to you um, in time to to make those kind of decisions so um, the first thing to to understand is that. Um, in my opinion, all security is just buying time. So no matter what you're doing to a home or anything to fortify, to fortify it with better security, you're just buying time. So it's just, uh, it's, it's harder for the criminal to get inside or get to what they desire. And, uh, hopefully these tips that I'll kind of recommend will, will help you out with that as well. So, um, one thing, the first thing that you, um, should look at, obviously when it comes to your home is, um, kind of the exterior of the home too. And you, what you want to do is you want to have your home, um, put off a, a vibe of being a hard target versus soft target. So, um, you know, you, you really want to try to, to just visually make it less, less appealing to the criminal. So some ways you can do that are, uh, you know, putting out a security alarm sign. That's a great deterrent. Um, so are ensuring that, you know, you're, there's not many hiding places around the perimeter of your home. So, you know, trim your bushes short, um, install some bushes that are, you know, prickly and nobody wants to walk through to get to a window to get inside or something like that. So really kind of pay attention to, you know, what the surroundings of your home look like as well. Um, throw in some security cameras, you know, even if they're fake. I mean, that goes back to the alarm system thing. Um, while, you know, obviously security cameras recording to a DVR, or, you know, would be, you know, a great asset to have during, you know, having to, uh, explain yourself to the police in the, in the case of, you know, what, what got stolen in a, in a robbery attempt or something like that. Um, you know, just the, the, the mere fact of having those or for the criminal to see is, is definitely deterrent as well. I mean, you know, while I definitely advocate alarm systems, I mean, even having a fake alarm system sign in your front yard would, you know, would be beneficial to, you know, in terms of uh, what a criminal sees. And again, that that hard target versus soft target. So some actual things you can do to fortify are when it comes to windows, you can get some secondary locking devices. And, you know, just ensuring that you're always keeping your windows locked, too, is is really beneficial, too. That goes for doors as well. So, by secondary locking devices, there's kind of these screw-on things that you can actually put into the track of your windows that will that will help them from being opened. You know, even in the uh, the case of them being broken, you know, most of the time criminals would break a window, reach through, unlock it, and lift it open. Well, again, you know, if they can't lift it open, that's just more time they got to use now to break out the rest of the glass and still get through the window, so on and so forth. So, you know, another thing you can do too is install some anti-break film in all your windows too. At this at this point. 
point in the game or buy Windows with that already installed. I'm not sure if that's available. But, uh, you know, having that anti-break film doesn't mean that, you know, the window is not eventually going to give way and allow someone in. But um, at the same time, there's that buying time again. Um, and then, you know, just briefly going back to the exterior and the uh, the hard target thing, you know, don't don't put boxes outside of, you know, the TV you just bought and things like that ready to be thrown away in the trash. You know, break them down, put them in a recycling bin. Don't make it easy for a criminal to want to come in to get whatever that new shiny object is you just threw out uh, the box for in the trash. So um, some other things, you know, um, have a dirty pair of size 13 sitting on your porch or, you know, get a dog, um, have an audible dog bark that goes on at random times during the day you know lots of those things can can help to to uh deter crime because i feel like that's essentially the uh the point of your question is you know you want to increase your security to better protect your home and your family so um, another thing is solar screens um, solar screens and while not only being beneficial of you know help keeping your home cooler in the summer can also kind of be a deterrent as well they'll allow you to kind of see out into um, into the street and into the, your front yard and things like that without necessarily um, someone being able to see back in during the day. Um, at night, it's not really, um, you know, they, they just act like a normal screen. But during the day, um, that's one of the kind of interesting effects of solar screens is that you can't really see into a home as easily, even if the uh, the shades are up. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, but also they screw into the frame of your windows too, which makes it just, you know, kind of harder to to get through for a criminal. They can't just easily pop them off and lift them to the side. You know, you really kind of, obviously you'd have to have a screwdriver and it would take some time. So again, buying time. Um, when it comes to doors, um, a company called Door Devil uh, is got my highest recommendation. We've, you know, done testing on ITS of actually putting that on to a uh, breaching cage at a company called Trident Response that I'm friends with. And we actually did a demonstration of, you know, a couple of guys, including myself, trying to kick in a door with one of those units on it. And uh, basically what it does is it provides kick protection against uh, against a break-in. So I can't recommend those enough. They not only fortify um, the actual door jam itself, but also the hinges um, as well as the, the locking mechanism, which are the, you know, the three points where a door will fail, you know. Um, again, investing in solid core doors would be a great move, too, at this phase in the game of building a house. So... Um, again, hopefully uh, that helps you out. I won't be trying not to be too long-winded here, but you know I could kind of go on and on about some tips to uh, to help with this. So um, anyhow, also real quick, make sure you get good locks too. Um, upgrade your locks to high security locks. So Medco, um, Abloy, things like that. Anything you can use to uh, to install security locks around your home would will help you out too. So thanks again for the question, and I hope it helps. Awesome stuff, as always, from Brian at ITS Tactical. Let's take another one of your calls. Hey, Jack. This is Barry in North Georgia. I've got a question about Comfrey. Uh, when planting Comfrey, I, I, I know that it has a, a deep tap root um, when it reaches its maturity, but I'm kind of curious. Do you start it from seed in a greenhouse, or you just go ahead and plant it directly into the ground, even though it's 32 degrees right now in North Georgia? Uh, appreciate the show and appreciate the feedback. Thanks. So we are back into the world of permaculture, and as always, dun, 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 it depends. <laughs> Seriously, um, so if we start out with, are we going to use seed at all? 
Because we have to accept something that we're going to use seed. If we're going to use seed, we're growing true comfrey. So there's a lot of ways to look at what that means. There's quite a few different varieties of wild strains, but most of the seed available is just referred to by the people selling it as true comfrey. Well, that means it's not hybridized. <clears throat> it's just comfrey that grows in its native wild state. Even with that, there's a lot of varieties. Let's just stick to let's call them all the same for the, the sake of this discussion and not making a whole show just on comfrey. The issue with that, when you plant it, it will grow. It will grow successfully. It will turn into beautiful comfrey. It will do all the great things that comfrey does, including put down a huge root system that can be cut and propagated multiple times with root cuttings. It will do all the medicinal things that, qual uh, that, that comfrey does. It will provide all the uh, nutrient accumulation and, and, and ability to, uh, to do wonderful things from a standpoint of composting and nutrient cycling that comfrey will. Uh, it will be a good fodder crop as far as some animals like to eat it. And it will produce beautiful little purple, purplish blue flowers that will attract lots of great beneficial insects. But the flowers will produce seed, and that seed will fall to the ground, and it will propagate itself. Now, can you go out right now and put comfrey seed on the ground and expect that it will grow? The answer is it depends. It may be. Is it under mulch? Uh, is it going to be eroded? Is it going to be eaten by birds? What have you. But when a comfrey plant drops, lots of it all over the place. And different, you know, types of natural and native mulches accumulate on top of it and it overwinters in a nice little spot and it gets a little stratification and, uh, the temperatures come back around to warm up in the spring and it's nice and moist. Uh, even if only 5% of it germinates, it's a lot of comfrey. So most people choose not to use quote unquote true comfrey from seed in their gardens and what have you because they fear that comfrey as hardy as it is, as tough as it is, will become invasive if it's a variety that will go to seed and reproduce. It's not necessarily a problem. You just need to know that's what you're planting if you use seeds. So <clears throat> if I was going to propagate comfrey from seed and I wanted the best chance of success, right now I would be starting it in, 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 in pots in a greenhouse or under lights. And I would get it into some level of establishment and then I would transplant it into the ground. I would not let it get very big before transplant, though. It tries to put down a taproot really, really fast. And because of that, the taproot is somewhat able to be damaged. And when the plant is small and weak, it's a big deal. When the plant is established, basically, if you have an inch and a half piece of comfrey root planted in the ground somewhere, assuming there's some nutrient there to work with and it stays moist and the temperature's right, it's going to grow into a new comfrey plant. So it's not an issue then, but when the plant is in a pot... So I might try using containers, tree the, that are designed for trees, about eight inches long, that would let that little comfrey plant send that big daggone root down. But I wouldn't sweat it. And I have started comfrey from seed in pots before I understood what I was doing and what I was setting loose on a property. I don't own that property anymore, so it's not my problem. Most people that are propagating comfrey on purpose for fodder and nutrient cycling and predator habitat and medicinal value and all the wonderful things comfrey does are going to use one of two different balkings. People say blocking because I think in our head it's like blocking this, blocking that, so blocking four, blocking 14, right? It's not blocking, it's balking. Balking is a place in England where all of the original research was done. I cannot remember the guy that did it or the name of the book that he wrote. I will try to find it for you and put it in the show notes for you anyway. I've read it. I have it on my Kindle. It's dry, scientific, boring, and at the same time, 
a fascinating discovery of how diverse the world of comfrey is. But in that book, you find out that he does all this research right along a town in England called Bocking. So he labeled the different varieties he was experimenting with from different hybrids and things like that, Bocking and then a number. So Bocking 1, Bocking 2, Bocking 3, Bocking 4, and so on. The two most common Bockings used today are Bocking 4 and Bocking 14. Bocking 4 is, is generally considered the best comfrey to grow as a fodder crop. It is considered by many people to be far more palatable to animals. Animals like it better uh, than Bocking 14. So it's generally grown as a fodder crop. Bocking 14 it generally is considered to be a bit better at the accumulation of nutrient and is usually the one that permaculturists will choose to grow in forest gardens and perennial gardens and things like that as a nutrient cycler. But both will work just fine for either. But a lot of people have reported some of their animals just won't eat Bocking 14 for whatever reason. So if you're using either one of those or any of the other crosses, um, you will find that the only way to propagate them reliability, reliability, reliably is from root cuttings. You can plant a whole crown or you can plant roots. You really want to take a root cutting. You can do as little as an inch to an inch and a half, but a two-inch piece of root and something that's at least as big around as a pencil is really what you're looking for. When you're planting a root cutting, not a crown right, or a whole plant, just a root cutting, you want to plant it in the ground horizontally. So what you do is you dig away the dirt and you lay it in the ground horizontally because it's going to put out tons of little hair roots and form a root mass and that's going to give it a jump start and it'll start dry it'll pick one root and start driving really deep and then it'll send up a little shoot it'll start to photosynthesize and it'll turn into something that looks like a uh, some kind of weird radioactive version of a cow's udder as it starts to put down multiple roots and from there it's off to the races and nothing hardly can stop it other than severe drought or severely denuded, no-nutrient soil. Because comfrey is so hardy, people have a tendency to think it doesn't need any fertility. It really needs fertility. You really need to include some compost and manure or good quality compost or other organic fertility and deep, moist soils for it when you're getting it started. Once it's established and it gets into all the little nooks and crannies and it starts dynamically accumulating nutrient, it's a very good fertility source for other plants. But that doesn't mean it can, it can go without you know nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. What it's really good at accumulating is, is phosphorus, definitely, uh, and potassium, definitely. Nitrogen, it's okay with. But it's also great at cycling other nutrients like boron and copper. And silicon. So it's not like it can just be in a desert and be okay. You want to dig a nice deep hole and fill it with the, really the best fertility you can give it and give that young comfrey start a great start. Now, when can you plant the roots? What I would not do. I would not take all your root cuttings right now and stick them in a pot and get them ready so that they're little plants when you plant them out. I would either take them and put them in a bag or a jar with a moist piece of paper towel Put a lid on that jar or in a bag, zip the bag up, and set it in a refrigerator. Okay, Not a freezer, a refrigerator. It will keep just fine for quite a few months that way. And then I would plant it whenever you're ready to. Can you plant it now? Depends on where you live. Is the ground workable? 
pretty much you can put it in the ground whenever the ground is workable. You can do it right now, and you won't see anything happen till quite a bit later in the year. But it will be down there hair-rooting the hell out of itself and starting to form a root system. And when the temperature and time is right, it'll start sending shoots up. You want to plant it no more than two inches deep, I would say. Um, so if you are in a situation where your ground will freeze that deep, don't plant it yet. If you're in a situation where only the top of your ground freezes this time of year and further on, go ahead and plant it. If you plant it in the fall, it doesn't matter. It's going to be so established by the time you go into winter, it's already perennial at that point. Uh, seriously. About the only time I don't think is the greatest time to plant it is the peak of summer because it's hard on a young plant. Uh, I would rather plant it at the end of summer going into fall than like midsummer. I'm talking like July, beginning of August. That's not when I would plant it. But as long as you take care of it, mulch it a lot, give it what it needs, and if it has a little bit of dappled shade, it'll be fine even then. But... There you go. So seed is for a true comfrey that will reproduce from seed and may become invasive. Your blocking 4 and 14 are going to come from crowns, whole plants, or root cuttings. And you want to plant your root cuttings horizontally in the soil about two inches deep in a really, and I mean dig it out a couple inches to a foot deep and put in really high quality stuff when you're establishing a comfrey plant. Understand that a comfrey plant, you're, you're, you're establishing an ally that will live for years and years and years in your garden. Do so much. So give it a good start. Don't rely too much on its its strength uh, and, and limit what it can do for you. Because by your second year, if you get it off to the ground, you're at a point now where you can pretty much tear into the ground and start pulling pieces off of it and do it almost no harm whatsoever and propagate it and propagate it and propagate it and propagate it if you get it established well. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one of your calls. Hi, Jack. Melissa from Illinois here. I have an expert panel question for Darby Simpson on chickens. I recently read Paul Wheaton's article on raising chickens. It was on uh, richsoil.com. And in the article, he went through all of the different types of coops or containment styles for keeping chickens. And one of the styles he was pretty critical of was chicken tractors. And his main concern was uh, the vegetation factor. My husband and I are going to be getting around six chickens this year for eggs, and we had planned to build a chicken tractor for them. But now I'm not so sure I would like, to, not so sure, and I would like to get Darby's opinion on them. Paul's recommendation is pastured poultry paddocks, and we have five acres, so this could be done, but I think for our first year, chicken tractors might be a better option for us. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to hear what he thinks. Um, so I sent that to Darby, and uh, I'm going to play something before I play what Darby has to say about it, just for fun, because we're all friends here, Paul, Darby, uh, myself, all the members of the council, all the members of the audience. But I think Darby has a totally different approach to this than Paul does. So some of you will know the funny spoof movie that this came from somewhat, but I think it'll make the point either way. I challenge you to a duel. Hello, Jack. This is Darby Simpson from the Expert Council calling in to address Melissa's question about Paul Wheaton's article on chicken tractors. Melissa had stated that she was planning to build a chicken tractor and put six laying hens in it sometime later this year. 
But after reading Paul's article, she had some concerns about whether or not using a chicken tractor was a good idea. Uh, Paul's preferred method is what he calls pastured poultry paddocks or paddock shift with chickens. And Melissa is kind of wondering now if that's the only way that she should raise laying hens. And my answer is, is no, a chicken tractor is not a bad idea, particularly if we're just talking about six laying hens and assuming that your chicken tractor is a decent size and they've got enough room to move around and get a good amount of their diet from forage and bugs and things of that nature. Now, one thing I want to point out here is that I think when Melissa says chicken tractor, she's referring to a system that you would move every day or maybe a couple of times a day, uh, sort of like we use here, uh, pastured poultry pens or pastured poultry tractors. And in Paul's article, when he says chicken tractor, he's actually talking about a tractor that's left in place for an extended period of time where the chickens will just completely deforest all of the vegetation there. And when he's talking about the type of system I use, he's saying a pastured poultry pen, and I'm pretty sure that that's what Melissa is talking about. Um, overall, I thought that Paul's article, which is titled Raising Chickens 2.0, is actually really good. I thought there was a lot of great information in it, uh, particularly if you don't have any experience with chickens or have limited experience with chickens. Uh, I think it's a, a great synopsis of all the different systems out there that can be used and kind of the pros and the cons of each one. And he walks you through everything from factory farming to his pasture poultry paddocks. So if you're looking for a source on, uh, you know, learning guide to, for chickens and particularly laying hens, I would suggest that uh, you take a look at that article and give it a read. Again, a lot of good information out there. Now, I do have some concerns and some thoughts on the article that I'd like to share. And as always, uh, I want to preface this by saying when I'm looking at Paul's article, uh, you know, I'm looking at this through the lens of a production mentality, you know, as a, as a business and, you know, how this works in terms of making a profit or at least being a good use of our time because we all have a limited amount of time, even if we're just homesteading or uh, if we're doing this professionally. So my thoughts on Paul's article, in fairness, in all fairness to Paul, he states right at the beginning that this is simply his opinion. These are his experiences, uh, you know, his thoughts as he's progressed through this journey and different systems that he's used and ideally what he's using now, which is a, a paddock uh, shift system. Now, are pasture poultry paddocks the best? In a word, yes, they are. They are ideal with when I say ideal in air quotes around the word ideal. And I would say it's ideal for layers. I think for me, birds, uh, that you would probably still need to use some grain or you would have to have a lot of space and you would have to have lots and lots of good, high quality clover and something like alfalfa to get the protein requirements needed to raise meat birds. Now, while alfalfa is a phenomenal plant, it's recently been genetically modified, so that's a concern. So just keep in mind, if you're thinking, I can raise meat birds on grass with no supplemental grain, I think you're probably going to be in for a shock. I think you can do it fairly well for layers. I think you could probably cut your, your feed by easily 50% and probably 80 or 90% in the summer. When we get to the winter, that's a whole different story. You're going to have to supplement with grain. They've got to eat something. Um 
another issue I really had with Paul's article was he, he had he came up with a scoring matrix for these different systems. Again, everything from factory farming to his paddocks. And it's his matrix, it's what he came up with. He was just he was trying to generate some way to kind of score things against one another on a scale of, you know, zero to ten, ten being the best. I thought that how he scored pasture poultry pens or what I call chicken tractors was really quite low and pretty unfair, at least in my experience. I, it, you know, I, I felt like he was a little bit harsh on him. He had eight different areas that he scored things in. Um, in only two of those, he had a score of six or better. On the other six, he had a score of four or worse. And in one case, all the way down to zero. Conversely, his pastured uh, paddock system he said, ideally, you could, you know, have a perfect 10 in every category, which, you know, again, ideally, yes, maybe you could, but I think it'd be really difficult. Um, meat birds might work uh, using uh, this pasture paddock system on a homesteading scale. I don't think that you could replicate this on a production scale. And here's why I bring this up. If we're kind of looking at ideal systems here, if you're thinking about this from a business standpoint, people, at least in my neck of the woods, people will not pay me for my labor to raise chickens like this. You have to use a slower-growing bird that's going to forage a lot more. It needs a lot more space. That space I could be using for something else that's in higher demand, like grass-fed beef. Um, and they're just not going to pay me for all of my, my time that it takes to raise these birds. Now, would it cut my grain bill down? Yes, it absolutely would. But would that offset issues with hawks? Again, I think this is way too idealistic with predators, particularly hawks, like I just mentioned. You know, Paul says he's using his his uh, livestock guardian dogs to to you know run off coyotes, and I don't doubt that he that he is, and probably really successfully. Even if your dogs are out there twenty four seven, you're not going to scare away all the hawks. The hawks are eventually going to get to your meat birds or some of your layers, and they're going to tear them apart. And I'm here to tell you, once they find that food source, they're not going to leave it alone. And at least where I live, the hawks we have are protected by state law, so you can't even kill them if they're killing your chickens. Now, um, it, like I said, people won't pay me for my labor. You know, it, it's, it's also easy for me to say that, you know, 10 years ago, people wouldn't have paid me like they're paying me now to raise chicken the way that I am. Ten years into the future, perhaps, you know, our clientele will be more enlightened. They'll demand more grass-fed chicken meat, and perhaps they'll be willing to pay the higher premium, uh, you know, for someone's labor to raise chicken this way. But again, I just felt like it was a little bit too idealistic. And in, in that same vein, um, you know, Paul says that his labor is something like two minutes per week for 25 chickens in his article. And I, I have no idea where he comes up with that. I mean, he's using portable electric netting. I, I, I don't know how many 168-foot-long strands of 42-inch high portable electric netting Paul has taken down and moved. That stuff is extremely labor-intensive. It's heavy. It's bulky. It's burdensome. Uh, quite frankly, it's a real pain in the neck a lot of times. Uh, it shores out. Uh, it's expensive. Your portable solar chargers that you have to connect to it are expensive. 
I, again, I just thought his article was way off base, completely in la-la land when it came to how easy this labor system is. Uh, I, I'm personally, I, I tell you, I, I could move five or six chicken tractors once or twice a day in the time I could move that entire portable system once or twice a week. And frankly, on a production scale, I think you'd have to move it more than once or twice a week because uh, you've got to have something for the birds to go into, like a mobile coop or, or whatever, and you can only get them so far away from that coop for, again, aerial predation protection. Um, now, um, the other issue I had with it, and this kind of gets back to Melissa's original question, was in general I just felt like the whole article was a, a little too idealistic. Now, in Paul's defense, he says at the beginning, hey, anything we can do, to get away from factory farming, we've got to do it. Something is better than nothing. You, you've got to start where you're at. But obviously, I think Melissa and who knows how many other people could miss that point. And the concern is that you get to, you know, you read this and you're like, well, gosh, if I, if I can't do it in this utopian manner, then I, I shouldn't do anything. And that's something I just want to stress here is that, you know, sure, we've all got uh, this perfect idea of how we want to raise our animals but just because we you know can't always uh, reach those milestones doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything we've got to do something and so like Paul says you, you've got to do what you can I just didn't feel like that really bled through in the theme of the rest of the article you had to, you know had that at the, the top of the article but then once you got into it it's kind of like well this system sucks and my system's the absolute best and this is what we need to be striving for so and that was something I wanted to point out. And then to that end, I mean, to really get idealistic about this, you know, chicken as a meat source is not really all that sustainable. I mean, if you really want to talk about truly sustainable meats, we should just be looking at 100% grass-fed things like rabbit, lamb, beef, things of that nature. Um, you know, are chickens sustainable for eggs? Yeah, they're pretty sustainable for eggs. Pretty daggone good. For meat, no. You go back 100 years and any time prior to that in history – Chicken was not on the dinner menu, hardly at all. So, you know, which leads me to the next thing is like, well, what if somebody doesn't have the land to do all this pastured uh, paddock shift system like like Paul's doing? I mean, it's it's like you know the soup Nazi only it's the chicken Nazis. Well, hey, no no chicken for you. You know, uh, if you can't do it this way, then then don't do it at all. And that's my fear is that people will read this and that's that's what they'll they'll take away from it and. You know, it it was just so idealistic in, in a number of ways, particularly from a production standpoint. It's, you know, you've got to balance like, hey, these are my morals. This is how I want to do things. And kind of my rule is if I can do things 90% of the way that I really want to do them, 90% of the time, I've made a lot of headway. I'm really far away from factory farming. I'm a lot closer to, you know, this it, what at least in my mind or in my book is this perfect system, and that's what I want people to strive for. Um, you know, again, he says do what you can with what you got, but I just didn't feel like that came through in the article, and it it kind of made me think about an experience I had a couple of weeks ago when we we did our Midwest Sustainable Conference here in Indianapolis. There was uh, a lot of people I talked with uh, about raising chicken, and I you know one of the presentations I did was our chicken tractor and how to build it and. There were, in particular, there were two guys from Ohio, a couple of buddies that came over, Mike and Patrick. And Patrick, in particular, man, he was just asking me all kinds of questions. 
I, I could tell he was like really honed in on trying to figure out like, okay, what can I squeeze out of my property in the most sustainable manner uh, uh, possible? Like how many chickens can I raise? You know, we're talking stocking, de- stocking densities and all this stuff. And he's asking a lot of questions about how much space do I need? And you know, how many, Birds can I get in this size chicken tractor? And he's wanting to raise his own meat birds. He's currently buying his meat birds from a local farmer, but he wants to raise what he can himself. And, you know, we, we worked through all that stuff, and, and I think Patrick really walked away with this sense of this is what I can do, and this is what I can do well and sustainably. It's not what I'd like to do, but this is what I can pull off. And that's that's what I want people to take away from this is, like, look, may, maybe you can't do, you know, pasture poultry paddock shift the way Paul talks about but do what you can. Go out and do what you can. So to Melissa, I would say, look, it's your first year with chickens. Build a chicken tractor. Get your six laying hens. Put them in there. Move them once a day. If you've got time, move them twice a day. Cut that feed bill as much as you possibly can. But go out and do it this way. Get some experience and claim that little bit of liberty in your life. Enjoy those eggs. Take good care of those hens. They're going to produce for you. They're going to be just fine. You're not mistreating them. You're not being mean to them. You're not doing anything wrong. And I hate that you were all set to do that, and you read one article with one guy's opinion, and it almost sounded like you were wondering if you should do it at all. So, yeah, you know, a couple years down the road, we've got more time, you got more experience, you got more funds to put into it. Try doing the, the paddock shift system and see how it works out for you. My concern is that since you're next door in Illinois, you're going to find out real fast what red-tailed hawks will do to laying hens that may be out a little bit too far away from their chicken tractor when they come in. Melissa, I hope this has been helpful for you. I hope I've answered your question. And I want to say good luck with your laying hens. By all means, go out and do it and uh, get some experience with it. To learn more about me, please visit DarbySimpson.com, and you can read all kinds of articles on the website for free about how to raise beef, chicken, pork, eggs, and anything in between. Um, Jack, thanks so much for tossing me another question, and take care. Bye-bye. I completely agree. I love Paul Wheaton. He, he's one of my best friends in the world. He's one of the, the great minds in permaculture. And he comes up with some amazing solutions. But he also gets stuck on his solutions to be, well, since this is the, this is the best way that I could come up with, this is what everybody should do. And I think that a lot of people who are really brilliant have fall into that trap. Well, the, the, the issue is it's not the best way for every circumstance, for every person, and every lifestyle. And in the end, this is what I've always said to Paul with his contention about anything else is chicken abuse or whatever. It's freaking chicken. It's just a chicken. And, you know, birds can be tractored, and you can tell by the way that bird looks and the way that bird acts and that bird's attitude that it's one very, very happy bird. And unless you're doing scorched earth policy which is where you're leaving the chicken there until there's nothing left. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I don't see anything wrong with scorching the earth with chickens for the establishment of something like a food forest as long as once those birds are done with the, a few cycles of that, you take them somewhere else and give them a more frequent moving. Um, and the reality is the chicken tractoring is paddock shift and paddock shift is chicken tractoring. It's simply a matter of how much do you graze and what is your density per square meter or per square yard 
in ratio to chickens. That's it. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Oh, one more time, Paul. It's the same thing. It's just a smaller paddock. And if you are, you know, running a tractor with a pretty sizable area, let's say if you're running kind of a mobile coop where they can get in and out of their coop and then they can go and move around on the ground, and the best way to do that is to actually elevate the coop so that they can get underneath the coop and not just, you know, take up space with the coop. It's easy to do that in like a 10 by 10, especially with adult birds. Those birds can be there for a day. It's not going to hurt anything, especially six birds. Um, no problem at all. If you move them once a day like that, really no problem at all. And what you'll see is three weeks behind that tractor, the ground just exploding with new growth and greenness. So I, I don't have any issues with it at all. I will tell you this, though. Moving a tractor with sub-adult to adult birds is much easier than moving a tractor with chicks. Chicks are stupid. They do everything they can to cause you to kill them. We've experienced it many times with bringing up a couple cycles of birds now with our small chicken tractor that we use kind of as an outdoor brooder uh, to get the birds to a size where we can do bigger areas with them. And um, so one of the best things you can do if you build this tractor with kind of a mobile tractor with 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 coop in it, this way you're not bringing the birds out to the tractor every day, which I just see that being really a pain in the ass, is move the tractor every night when you put the birds away. So that when you go out in the morning to let them out, all you do is open it up and they go out to break new fresh grass. Or move it in the morning before you let them out. Doing that will minimize your potential to destroy a chicken. Now, that would kind of surplant moving them in the middle of the day, but as they get older, they kind of learn what moving's all about. You move them a foot and wait a couple seconds, and they all run to the new fresh stuff, and then you can move the rest of it. Um, and you can get a little more creative with some wheels and some things. Joe built one. Josiah, my intern, built one for his place in Montana that basically uses wheels like uh, for a boat trailer where you turn them down and they lift the bottom up, and then you can slide it along. Bigger devices would you know use things like that. So do that, but also if you're going to think about your dimensions, if you have certain areas that are kind of narrow on your property that you're going to put, want to put your tractor through there, you know, think more of a rectangular shape where you can fit it in all the places you want to fit it. Uh, length, usually you're not going to be building it big enough for that to be an issue. Um, and, 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 but width, you know, that can become an issue pretty quick for getting through gates and things like that without having to take the birds out and what have you. So I think that's a, a viable option. And for a flock of six birds, man, no problem. No problem at all. Um, you know, just because something is an ideal doesn't mean it's what is ideal for everyone. So I agree with Darby there. Uh, dual challenge, dual accepted. I, I think Darby wins that one, but Paul, I still love you, and I see a lot of brilliance in the way that you think chickens should be raised for people that can do it, and not for everybody else. Hey, Jack, this is Keith in Colorado. Hey, uh, I've got some pretty amazing news. The West is filled with Colorado because of water issues. has kind of been forced into the soil health category. So I just got out of the phone with the USDA uh, office out here and the NCRS office, and basically they're doing massive conferences in Delta and Montrose on soil health. I just missed the one that just came up, uh, but they are doing contour seeding, cover crops. They're working on new ways to do cornfields, like I said, with cover crops. And apparently... 
from what the uh, the NCRS guy said. They are getting 200 bushels and bushels of an acre of corn using cover crops and no fertilizers. Um, so uh, I just thought I'd share that good news with you guys. And I'm going to be working with the local offices to do test plots on my property uh, using permaculture principles, and it will most likely be used in their local programs. Um, and I, you know, it's not the best way to do it. Colorado kind of sucks as far as gun legislation and et cetera, but at least we're trying to head in the right direction. Besides, you know, we don't have the water to keep farming like we have been using flood irrigation and et cetera. So I'm going to be working with these guys with some test plots and stuff like that. So hopefully we get, we can gain some traction and do the right thing. Talk to you soon. Love what you do. Bye. All right, well, I like this, and I'm glad to see it, But and I wish I could just say, now I'm happy, but I'm not happy, because I, I see what's going on right now with no-till agriculture. I see what's going on right now, and I just posted this yesterday on Facebook with MIT coming out, basically saying, eat fresh, eat GMO, and we have to get over a free of, fear of GMOs, and GMOs are good, and GMOs are wonderful, and everything's great about GMOs, and, and we should stop worrying about GMOs and start worrying about feeding the, the planet and fighting climate change. Fighting climate change always comes into their... Crap. I put out a post yesterday. It said, Earth to, to hippie permaculturists. The people behind the, the global warming movement are not on your side. This is what they want. They want GMOs for all. And it's not going to stop there. So this project in Colorado, since I hear cover cropping, that makes me feel good. This may be really, really good. It may be all good. But the main reason I played this is so I can once again tell you, and this is what comes next. And this is going to be another one of those... I'm going to hear about this from people going, you were right again, you were right again. And I'm going to sigh, and I'm going to be very sad, and I'm going to wish that I was wrong. No-till agriculture is starting to make big inroads. This does not mean that people like Monsanto and Conagra are going to put their tail between their legs and run away and hide. What it means is they're going to get on board with it and be part of it and be part of the solution again, like they always are. The solution will not be good for you or the planet or your food supply. This is what they're going to do. They're going to make a case that if no-till is to be done, then GMO is the way forward. And this is why. When you deal with annual crop production, especially when you're growing things like corn and soy uh, and wheat, the biggest reason that you till isn't just to get the seed in the ground so that it can be planted. It's to disrupt the cycle of all the other plants that are competing for the use of that piece of ground. To break up, destroy sod, put it into the soil so that you're not competing with weeds and grass and things like that. Then you sow, and in the old days you just did that, and you sowed and you waited for it to grow, and you advantaged the wheat or the soy or whatever. So yeah, there's some weeds, but by the time the weeds get back in track, your your proper seed is up high, and it is dominant, and you get a pretty good yield. And then Monsanto came in and said, wouldn't it be great if you could just spray your food with poisons and it wouldn't kill your food? Don't worry about your customer eating the poison, but wouldn't that be great? And farmers said, well, yeah, but if we spray the if we spray the, the plant with a herbicide, it'll die. And, and Monsanto said, nah, here's what we did. We took a gene that doesn't belong in the plant, we stuck it in there, so now you can spray it with as much poison as you want, and you won't kill it. And the farmer said, nah, uh, and then they tried it and they went, holy crap, it works. 
And then they had a great big field full of soybeans with no weeds because all the weeds were dead because they sprayed it with freaking Roundup, right? And with corn, they spray it with atrazine. And they build these genes in these seeds to be resistant to the herbicide. Again, I am not so much concerned about the fact that the, the, the seed is genetically engineered as I am why they've gen genetically engineered it and what are the consequences of that decision. And the consequences are your food is now completely ravaged with a toxin that it takes in at the cellular level and you're eating glyphosate. You're eating atrazine. You're eating 2,4-D, which is like one chemical away from Agent Orange. It's like, it's like almost a, a twin of Asian orange, but they took one little piece, one molecule basically, uh, out of the, uh, of the formula from Asian orange, and it's 2,4-D, and you're eating this shit, and you're eating it in higher concentrations than ever before, because they've made the food able to withstand being sprayed. So, here's the next move from Monsanto, Conagra, Bear, all these GMO companies. No-till agriculture is wonderful. It's going to conserve topsoil and do so many great things for the environment. But there's no way it can be done. There's no way it can be done with corn and soy and wheat and, and things like that. In fact, this is the reason you need to approve GMO wheat to make this happen. Here's what we need to do. We'll spray the field. And then we'll drill in the seed. And when the seed comes up, we'll spray it again. And then this way, you'll never have to till the field. All you'll have to do is drill the seed in. And drill is, you've got a device that rolls and has little punch holes and plucks a seed in the ground. So you just punch the seed in the ground and never till it. Is this better than what they're doing now? Yes. It, but it will, wider adoption of GMO. Here's the next thing that happens. With horsepower, by people like MIT saying GMO is good for you, right? There's nothing to be, this is a hysterical nut job you know, crazy fringe thing. People have been eating this stuff for 10 years now. Nobody's falling over and dying. They're nuts. You know, they, they think every disease they get is related to this. It, don't, don't pay attention to the scientific studies where the friggin' mice die uh, and their livers explode. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's fine. If you feed anything, one thing long enough, it'll kill them. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Let's talk about that one for a second because it's true. And it is used to demonize things that don't need to be demonized. But I'll tell you what else it's, it's, it's not the case. When you feed the same animal the same ratio of the same stuff and change one thing and it doesn't die, then it matters. So in these experiments where these, these animals had massive kidney and liver problems, they fed one group GMO corn and they fed the other group non-GMO corn and the non-GMO ones got nowhere near the incidence of disease. So it all depends Right, So they're going to say that that doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. There's nothing to see here. Eat your GMO. It's good for you. GMO is fresh. GMO is farming. And they are going to make the case that organic farming needs to embrace genetically engineered crops. And it's already started a little bit. There's going to be a huge push in the next three to five years. And since USDA controls organic, not the private sector, it will happen. GMO will get approved for organic use. Not the kind of GMO that we spray with glyphosate. They'll say, you can't use glyphosate. But if you can use BT, Bacillus thungosus, right, which is a naturally occurring bacteria that destroys things like caterpillars, like hornworms, if you can spray BT on corn and it's organic, and that's okay, then why can't you use BT corn? There's corn 
Now, Monsanto stacks the genetic traits, so it has all these other genetics, but Monsanto can say, look, there's no, there's no problem here. We can make corn that just produces the BT to reduce the corn worm problem, and then you can use organic practices in our seeds. You don't need the chemicals. And they're going to make that case. And Americans will probably believe it because the average person that buys consumer, uh, buys, buys organic food from places like Whole Foods is an uptight yuppie that doesn't know about any of the things that we talk about around here. And as long as it says organic, it's better. Doesn't matter that most of your organic car carrots are currently being grown in Baja, California, where diesel pumps are pumping water out of their aquifer 24-7, 365, depleting the natural resource that is being dumped on the fields because it's the only way to keep it alive down there. And it's the only place they can afford to do it and, and, and make money on something like a carrot in the organic space and sell it in supermarkets. If you've noticed, it's like one of the most available and affordable organic choices you can make in your supermarket. This is why. So they're running the diesel pumps. They're pumping all that water. They're destroying the soil. And they have a workforce down there of Mexican labor that's probably one step above at best slave labor. But it's organic because they're not spraying it with the toxins. Organic does not necessarily, and I say USDA organic, not the real meaning of the word, which is carbon-based life, right? Does not necessarily mean higher quality or better food. And I'm going to hear from some of you guys that listen that have organic uh, farms. You're going to be pissed at me. I'm sorry, that's the case. It doesn't mean that your organic food isn't really high quality, wonderful food. It just means not all, like the organic label itself doesn't guarantee anything anymore, really, other than what's not in the food. That's it. It doesn't guarantee anything about nutrient quality. It doesn't guarantee anything about the quality of the care of the land the food's grown on, other than certain things aren't put on the land. You can damage land without chemicals. I mean, that's to think that you can only damage land through the use of chemicals is crazy. I would tell you that properly managed land using conventional fertilizers at real reasonable rates as part of fertility in addition to organic matter with proper erosion planning and proper cover planning will do less harm to land than up until just till your brain's out with no concern for erosion organic farming and you say well they can't get away with that it won't work well it will on certain land contours you lose the soil in the wind but you don't lose it through direct erosion Just don't buy into a lot of this BS and understand that, yeah, I'd love to just be happy and say everything's moving in the right direction, but it's not. And that's what's coming. No-till agriculture being used to sell GMO herbicide-resistant plantings with direct drill technology. When I say direct drill, direct drilling of seed into the soil. And a huge push in the next three to five years to force USDA organic to include options for farmers to grow genetically modified seeds, but not the chemicals that go with the ones that they're using now. And they'll say it's a wonderful thing because if we can breed a drought-resistant tomato, then that helps the organic farmer. And stop being afraid of science, you Neanderthals. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I've got a question for Ben Falk on the Expert Council. I was wondering if... Pollarding a fruit tree um, can replace having a dwarf cultivar. And what could be some guidelines on whether to pollard or coppice a uh, fruit tree of an unknown age? 
Thank you very much. This is LaRue from Nebraska. Bye now. A question for Ben Falk. Awesome. So uh sent this one over to Ben. I, I actually didn't get it earlier this week. I didn't find it earlier this week. I found it today when I was screening. And, you know, funny enough, Ben got it like immediately back to me like five minutes later. So uh, this one's kind of a bonus today. It wasn't in the original lineup, but I'm sure Ben has a great answer. Another one of those where I haven't heard the answer yet. So, Ben, what say you? Hey there, Jack Ben Falk from the Expert Council um, with an attempt to answer the question about pollarding fruit trees and if that replaces grafting and, um, excuse me, replaces um, a dwarf variety and also pollarding a tree of an unknown age. Well, to start with a tree of an unknown age, I think you, you would approach it um, the same way a tree you knew the age. I mean, pollarding is, is a structural activity. Um only so uh, whether it's 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 based on the tree's size and and what form what height you want the tree to have um, form is really dictated by uh, pruning and so I think your first question um, about keeping it seems sounds like you're interested in keeping a tree small um, and that I would think you know you'd approach by pruning not so much pollarding pollarding is just to keep a tree low um, you're going to want to a prune a, a, a larger growing variety to have it be more like a dwarf. But it's not going to re- it's not going to equal a dwarf tree. Uh, a, a tree with a rootstock that wants to um, to drive that tree to be big is going to keep doing that, and it won't change just because you pollard it or, or prune it. Um, whereas a dwarf variety will not grow that large. So if you want something small. Um, it's better to have a dwarfing variety, uh, for the rootstock. You can keep, that said, you can keep, uh, like standard size apple rootstocks, for instance, we keep pretty small by pruning, but they always want to get big. So, um, a dwarf would be better on that variable alone, but dwarf rootstocks obviously have other disadvantages. They're usually less hardy to wind and cold and oftentimes to pest, and they also don't live as long. That might be the biggest disadvantage. I think Ben missed a little bit of that question um, because he kind of gave an assumative answer, and and it was, you know, do you would you pollard or coppice a fruit tree? And and the answer is I would never coppice a fruit tree. Coppice is a low cut. A pollard is a higher cut, like a head height cut. Um, I, I think you could, but I think you're going to be better off. And more what I would do, uh, 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 maybe even a higher. It depends on this. Like you say it's an unknown age, but the tree has a certain size, and that's what Ben was getting at. And if I've got, you know, Y branches up a little bit higher than my head, I might have to get up on a stepladder to really bring that thing back and then have to do a lot of pruning. Uh, so if it's a pretty big tree, you're only going to be able to do so much with controlling its growth. The way that you control the, 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 the final size or the maintained size of a tree, if you want to seriously alter it, so it's a tree that could be a 30-foot-tall tree, and you want to hold it at 14 feet, or you want to hold it at 10 feet, or you want to hold it at... Yeah, I've seen people do it in backyards with full-size apples and hold them at, you know, seven to eight feet high. You gotta get on that when that tree's young. You gotta force lateral growth before the tree gets up. It's very difficult to switch that around, you know, once that tree gets that, 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 that structure to it. So it, it is more about a structure thing. So that's the only addition I have. And with that, we've got one more call today and then we'll wrap it up for the day. 
Jack, it's David from Connecticut. Just wanted to uh, leave you a, a comment and then a question. I was turned on to your podcast a few months ago by a good friend of mine. And, you know, from day one, I was just completely blown away by everything that I hear, you know, the, all of the different information on different topics. And one of the things that I realized was uh, when I was looking or hearing about libertarians and the liberty movement before, everything that I was seeing out there in, in mainstream America basically led me to believe that liberty, libertarianism is pretty much just a, um, just, just a front that was uh, a Republican front, basically. And uh, not not very much different at the end of the day than you know your average Republicans, who to me are actually no different than the Democrats in their agenda. Um, so I started to listen to everything you were saying. I found myself shaking my head in agreement a lot to everything that you talked about. And I've come to find out that the liberty movement is it really just that. It's really just a movement for those who love liberty and want to um, want to pursue that. And uh, so my question to you is, you know, being that when you, when you talk to somebody about, you know, libertarianism, to many people it's it's just a buzzword for, you know, um, a, a sect of the Republican Party, if you will. And uh, you know, wh- where do you what do you point to when you're talking to someone who may not be familiar with the true identity of of the liberty movement? Um, you know, what do you reference, and what what do you feel is the easiest way to? be able to get somebody to understand it because I think that the more people really do understand this, the more they're going to want to move in that direction as well. So I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. And uh, again, love the show and getting a ton out of it and really, really appreciate you uh, putting out all this together for us. Thanks so much. You know, I just did a comment on the blog in response to, I think it was Survivor, Uh, talking about libertarians might be able to get this done and this done in coalition with Republicans and all. And when he got done with this whole comment, my, my initial lead-off response was, why the hell do people think that libertarian is simply code for Republicans that are okay with gay people and smoking pot? Because I, I think that's what, what people actually think. Like, libertarians are just big, big-time... Uh, neocon Republicans that want, you know, the, 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 the corporations to run the entire world and they're, but they're okay with pot and they're okay with gay people. So they're a little bit better. But in the end, economically, they're Republicans. <sighs> One of the things you can do with someone that, that's stuck on that issue, stop using the word libertarian. Like, as soon as you get to that point in the conversation with them, just say, let's not talk about libertarian and Republican and statist and socialist, and let's let all of that go, and let's just talk about what is liberty, what is freedom, and let's talk about government and what government does. This is a fundamental difference, and I, it, I can explain this. I don't know that you can take it and make it into your own words, because if you say it in my words, it may not have the, the delivery it needs. You really need to take, when you're having these deep conversations, philosophical conversations with people, put it into your own words, formulate your own thoughts on it, and, and make it your own when you do it. But the, the whole concept that libertarians are like Republicans and want the corporatocracy to run the world and let the corporations do whatever they want is predicated on the belief that right now government prevents that. Okay? So it's the belief, like... If, if, if libertarians got their way, it would just be basically like uber Republican and all of these corporations would have even more power than they have right now. And basically what, what that person saying that doesn't understand, the power of these corporations right now is unlimited. All of the regulations they have to comply with 
You think that they would hate these regulations. And trust me, like the middle management people and stuff in these companies that has to deal with all this shit, they do hate it, but it's their job. And frankly, a lot of them, if they really thought about it, would become really grateful for them because a lot of them wouldn't even be employed. They wouldn't even have a job if it wasn't for all these regulations. They are there to ensure compliance or to provide for compliance in one way or another. And I'm not saying we don't need certain safeguards, like, you know, you can't dump lead into the ocean would be a good safeguard. Like, from a minarchist libertarian viewpoint, you would say that that, that should not be permitted. Right? There is some place for a minimalist state in a minarchist libertarian mind, and You know, I get more and more toward, well, can they even do that right? But let's just say that they can for the sake of this discussion. Um, so you think that these companies don't like this, that they would say, we want to be cut free from all this. And the reality is they love it. The people that actually own these mega corporations love all these regulations. They've paid to have them put in place. They don't prevent Monsanto from doing jackedly shit with agriculture and chemicals. They do not prevent Pfizer or Merck from doing jackedly shit with drugs and pharmaceuticals. They do not prevent Chase uh, and J.P. Morgan from doing jack shit with economics and finance. They're exempt from all of it, or they comply with it to, as a means to an end. What it prevents is me from setting up Jack's Bank, Darby Simpson from setting up Darby's Seed Company, and it prevents you know other people from doing other things and being able to actually compete. The regulations are not designed to protect the consumer. They're designed to protect the monopolies of the mega corporations. They are designed to make it so expensive to enter these worlds of commerce that it's undoable in any meaningful way. Now, can you set up a seed company? Sure. But can you really compete with Monsanto? No. No. Because the minute you try, not because their product's better, the minute you try, you're going to run into a wall of restrictions and regulations and costs that a small company coming up can't afford. So this entire belief that, well, if libertarians had their way, these corporations would be able to get away with everything they want right from the beginning, assumes that they're not getting everything they want. So what I would ask you is, okay, what is Chase Bank not getting right now that it wants that the government's preventing? And you might find that that's a very good question to ask somebody with this, with this, this viewpoint. What, what, what are they not getting that they want right now? They got lots of our money. They're getting interest from the Fed at zero interest. They are exempt from all the financial reforms that were enacted in financial reform legislation. What, what don't they get? What would they do differently if we removed a lot of the regulations from banking and finance? Well, they do horrible things. What would they do specifically that they already are not able to do? Specifically, not it would be terrible, not it would be awful, not that baby seals would be clubbed to death. What would Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, do differently if government regulations were not in the way of Jimbo Jones setting up a freaking bank? And it's a very hard question to answer because the answer is, pro if their honest answer is going to be for most people that have this viewpoint is, I, I don't know. 
It's a great step in the right direction. When somebody will at least admit, I really don't know. Then you can say, okay, so your certainty that this would absolutely be the worst thing in the world is now gone. The certainty isn't there anymore. So now at least we can explore what would happen. Then you start leading them through, well, what, what right now makes you go to a bank in the first place? Well, I need a place to save my money, to manage my money, and to borrow money, and to hopefully get a return on my money. That's it. There's a reason we have banks, so that we can move money from one place to another efficiently, so that we can store our money and have it able to be moved when we want to, to hopefully get a return of investment, and so that we can borrow money. That's the only reason we have banks. So then we say, okay, if, if we got all of this bullshit regulation and got rid of it, and stop worrying about J.P. Morgan abusing people because they're doing it every single day, and you have no alternative. Even the small banks are still part of this financial elite system. They're tied to the Federal Reserve. What would happen if anybody that wanted to anywhere could set up a bank? Well, they could defraud people. Yes, and they could go to prison for fraud. Right? Well, people could lose money in their banks, and they would lose all their customers. Right? So it's not like there's no enforcement of any law, but in both of those instances, there's a victim to the crime. I chose to do business with you. You made a commitment to me. I made a commitment to you. We had a contract. I will put my money in your bank under these conditions. You violated the contract. Now you're subject to some sort of reprisal for violation of the contract. We don't need a thousand regulations. The contract between the individuals becomes the regulation. Start to think about it that way. What if you had unlimited choices in what you needed from a bank? Now, well, everybody would have a bank that and print money. No, because you wouldn't be able to print money because you wouldn't have a government system designed for printing money. No, you'd have to work with the money that exists. So now what would happen is that when you went to a bank, you wouldn't assume a lot of things. See, when you go to a bank, you assume certain things. You assume it's safe because it's a bank. They can't be a bank unless it's safe. You know you've got FDIC insurance. You can't have a bank without FDIC. So you've got insurance against your money, whether you actually wanted it or not. What if your cost of doing business with the bank goes down because they don't do that type of insurance? What if they say, we only insure depositors up to $5,000 of loss? Well, if you're only going to have $3,000 worth of money in the bank, do you really care? Or if you run a balance of around eight or nine thousand dollars, is five thousand dollars enough insurance for you with a deductible of whatever you got the overage of? You see what I'm saying? All of a sudden, all these options start to just spill out. What if, whenever you did business with a company, you had a contract with that company that was in some way negotiable? And if it wasn't directly negotiable, i.e., I go to this opportunity and say, what is your what is your terms and your contract for storing money in your bank, and I didn't like it, then I could just go to another bank with different terms and, and different uh, stipulations until I found the one that most suited what I wanted. Banking's probably the most complicated system of, of two people doing business with each other and probably the one with the most potential for abuse. And fraud. So, if that could work with banking, 
Why couldn't it work with agriculture? Why couldn't it work with computers? Why couldn't it work with food? Why do we need the FDA shutting down a little girl who had a cupcake business for two years with no unhappy customers whatsoever because she now has been told she needs a USDA or FDA-approved kitchen to cook her freaking cupcakes in? There's nothing illegal about her giving you a cupcake at all right now. She can make as many cupcakes as she wants and give them to as many people as she wants for free. But the minute you choose to reciprocate for her kindness, to conduct business with her by giving her $2 for her cupcakes, now the government says, oh, now this has to be regulated for, for your safety as a consumer. Well, did you ask to be protected from this little girl's cupcake? Right? And, and again, it's the presumption of safety without personal responsibility that creates the need for the regulation that caused the problem in the first place. Let me explain it with a totally different issue. The labeling of GMO foods. I have said that I am for mandatory GMO food labels. And p people that, like, they know I'm a libertarian. I'm on the edge of anarchism. I get pushed further every day by more incompetence in government. From just saying to hell with any government at all, right? Make it 100% voluntary. I think I have a solution for that. I'll save for a future show, though. A way that actually could sort of kind of work. A state by choice. We'll leave that for a future. Um, but so let's examine this, this, this food world from the GMO labeling standpoint. The reason that you pick up a box of food and think, I don't need to know anything except what's on this box. Because the governments give you assurance that everything that you need to know is on that box. The regulation itself has created the illusion of safety. Well, everything that's in here is listed, and anything that's really not safe wouldn't be allowed in. So the food's safe to eat. It's safe to eat, you won't die tomorrow, but is it safe? Is it really safe? And what I mean by that is, when you look and it says corn or corn syrup, You've been given an expectation by regulation that that's what's in there, corn or corn syrup. So you, the consumer's mind doesn't think that also means may contain atrazine and 2,4-D, right? If you're going to list the ingredients that are in the food and you're going to say that that is the ingredients in the food, should then not all the ingredients be listed? Think about that. Should not all the ingredients be listed? And the answer is yes. So it should say on your food that says soybean meal, and if it's GMO soy that was sprayed with glyphosate, and you know damn well you can't wash it off because it's now part of it should say contains glyphosate. It should be in the ingredients list. Where? They do from the most ingredients to the least ingredients, wherever it works itself out. When you test the food. And say, how much is in there? 0.01%. Oh, it's the second to the last ingredient. Right? Because you've, you've set that expectation. So it sounds like I'm for more government. I'm not. I'm saying if you set the expectation, then corn and GMO corn are two different ingredients. And I have a right to know what's in my food because you've used my money to put in legislation that promises me that's what you're going to do. You took my money against my will. You created an organization 
you made a promise from that organization back to me, even though I didn't want it in the first place. Well, damn it, until you stop doing this to me, until you stop taking my money and doing this service that I'm not asking you for, then I expect you to do it right, which includes all the information that I need. So how does that work if we flip it around the other way? What if we got rid of all the labeling requirements of food? Well, then people would put rat poison in the food. No, they would kill you with that, and you wouldn't buy any more food. Right? What I think would happen is people would say, well, gee, how are we going to know if our food's good and safe to eat anymore? And then there's people like me all around the world that are these things called entrepreneurs. And we would hear, ding, 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 opportunity. And we would go into businesses that did independent testing of foods, that offered our own certifications of the quality and the ingredients of foods based on what people needed. And people would say, I don't need much assurance on an apple other than I want an apple not sprayed with certain chemicals. Because an apple is a whole food. So there'd be a very simple certification for an apple that might even be an organization that simply shows up several times a year unannounced to your apple uh, orchard and says, hmm, there's no sprays here, little soil sample, no residues here, everything's good, signs your card, you get that three or four times a year, the, the producer pays for that, and they put that insignia on their apples. And you as a consumer say, that's good enough for me. And other consumers will say, I want more than that. I want to know how that apple's handled. And there would be companies that would go to a higher level of certification. And you would be able to pick and choose what you wanted. right? So when the little girl is cooking her cupcakes in her kitchen, and she says, do you want to buy one of my cupcakes? And you say, well, was it? what kind of kitchen do you have? And she says, just my house. Then you have a choice to say, huh, okay. I'll, 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 I'll buy that. Or you don't have any certification. You don't have a cleanliness certification for your kitchen. No? Okay, well, then I'm not going to buy your cupcake. And that little girl will then have to decide, well, is that important to enough of her customer base to make it worth the expense and the bother to do? And she either will or she won't. And then you actually have something that we always hear about and have never experienced a free market. There is no free market, and Republicans are not for a free market. There's no way that libertarians and Republicans are compatible with each other. They're completely incompatible. Now, Republican individuals and libertarian individuals are often highly compatible. They may have a few issues they have sticking points on, but in a lot of big picture areas, if they actually have time to discuss it, they'll come to the same conclusions eventually. When I say libertarians and Republicans are not compatible, I mean libertarians and Republicans in government are completely, totally incompatible with each other. The difference between libertarians and Republicans in government is that unlike Democrats and Republicans in society, we know that the marketing doesn't match the method. We simply know that what they're promising to do, what they say they want to do, and what they say they are doing is not what they are doing at all. That deregulation to a Republican congressman means new regulations. Deregulation to a Republican congressman or senator means new regulations that let the people at the top of the existing structure do more stuff 
but equally inhibit the ability of a small player to move up into the large player's realm. That's, that's what deregulation means to a Republican. What deregulation means to a Democratic senator is the ability for that larger company to do something they don't want them to do right now. <laughs> right? And then, then deregulation is bad. When it's to allow them to do something that the Democrat does want to allow them to do, it's called streamlining regulations. And in the end, both sides, both mafia families, are using different marketing to sell the same concepts. So the, the entire reason that somebody thinks libertarian is, is just runaway big business and run away, you know, no more government regulations, and, and it is based on the summation, based on the belief that right now that's not what we already have. The only way to break through that is to explain to them that is exactly what we have, and the existing regulations do far more to empower that than to restrict it. Sure, you can find a few areas where they are restricted. And there's a few things they're not allowed to do, they'd really like to do, and the government won't play ball with them and let them do those things. But the only reason they have as much power as they do is most of the other regulations actually entrench their monopolies and empower them. And let me tell you something about the few places that they're restricted that you think the world would explode if we let them do this or we let them do that. In most instances... They have no interest in doing those things. Those are part of the illusion. Those are part of the illusion. Those are the things that you think matter to them. If they really wanted to do them, they would have just paid their congressional clowns to find them a loophole and they would already be doing them. Everything that big, giant corporatocracy businesses want to do today They are already doing, period, the end. The belief that your government is in any way offering you protection from billion-dollar corporations is nothing but that illusion. All right, This is a magician's theater. It's a magician's theater. Everything you're looking at is the pretty girl while the magician is pulling something from his sleeve. That's it. That's all you're seeing. In magic, at least the pretty girl is nice to look at. In politics, the pretty girl is a punch in the face. They punch you in the face here and misdirect you so that you're angry, and over here they have the real agenda going forward. Our government today is the most restrictive it's ever been in our history on individual rights. There has never been a time with greater restriction on individual rights in this nation. Now, let go the whole, but black people didn't have rights, as I understand that. For the people that had the rights, there has never been a time where individual liberty has been more restricted. Okay? And if I could go back and make the whole slavery thing never have happened, I would love to. But it did, and we can't let it cloud our, our view 
to the totality of the context of history. All right? So there's never been a time with greater individual liberty restriction in our nation. And there's never been a time where there was more wealth held by a smaller number of people ever and greater control of our government and our nation from the very thing that government is claiming to protect us from through the restriction of our rights. You know, causational graphs, you know, right? If you looked at a graph in this country of individual liberty, it would be on a decline. And if you looked at it on the power of corporations, the wealth of corporations, and the wealth held not by the 1%, but by the one-tenth of 1%, it's going up at the exact opposite ratio. Think about this. Before you ever trust your government to protect you again, From all the things they say to protect you, why is it true then that you now live at a time with less individual freedom than any American citizen with full rights as such has ever experienced? There's never been a time that a full-blown American citizen recognized as such has had less freedom ever since the founding of our country than today, this second, right now. And there's never been a time since the founding of this country when our nation was more controlled by big business than right now. Oh, Rockefeller this and the you know, Carnegie that. Bullshit. Bullshit. We're talking about segments of industry. We now have the wholesale throat grip strangle of our entire nation in every industry, by one to three giant corporations, all of whom pretend that they're competing with each other, most of whom are cooperating with each other. But we need them. They protect us. They are the ones that keep those companies from going too far. Now you have that conversation with the person that thinks libertarian is code for a Republican that thinks gay people and marijuana is okay. And let them try to answer that. And you may find them come up with ridiculous answers that don't answer the question for you, but will answer the questions in their own mind. Because now understand what you're asking someone to do. I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican. You're asking them to let go of the paradigm that they've clinged to their entire life. And most of the time when you have a conversation with this, it's not with a 16-year-old, it's a 36-year-old. They're really vested in this now. Try to remember when you were vested in it. I voted for freaking George W. Bush. In his first election. Me! I voted for George Bush. And I thought it mattered. And I thought it was important. And I argued why we needed to. And how bad it would be if Al Gore was president. This last election, I voted for no one. I voted for nobody. Because there wasn't anybody that was worthy of my vote. And I will not endorse the abuse of my freedoms and liberty 
with my vote. I will not vote for anyone or anything unless it's something I genuinely believe is right and decent. So if my state ever gets off its ass and figures out that making a plant illegal is a stupid-ass idea and wants to decriminalize marijuana, I'll get off my ass and vote. If I ever think there's any potential whatsoever for an actual real libertarian candidate, not just someone that calls themselves that, but someone that's a real libertarian to win, I will get off my ass and vote. Otherwise, they don't deserve my endorsement. They don't deserve yours either. Every second I spend trying to fix a broken system is a second that could be spent building a new system that actually works. And here's the big thing. If you've listened to this show, you know that I analyze solution, analyze situations and problems. And I come up with solutions that people are like, holy crap, how do you come up with this stuff? Because my mind is not inside the oligarchy, big, giant, behemoth mess That is our existing system. That's why. Because I'm outside of there. Not just physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. I have left, Spirico has left the freaking building when it comes to politics. I'm gone. I'm not in there anymore. There were people saying Bitcoin was probably just nothing but a trap. Admiral Akbar, right? From Star Trek. It's, or Star Wars. It's a trap, right? Because the government just set it up, and one day they're just going to go, aha, it was us all along, and we know everything that everybody's been doing. I say that's ridiculous, and I'll tell you why. Government could not, nobody in government could conceive of Bitcoin, of it working, of it being accepted, of how it functions. Their minds are not capable. Like, I'm not saying that all programmers that if you told them what to do couldn't make it. You can buy programming skills. I'm saying that the people that have enough power to do something like that could not conceive of how it would work. They could never conceive of the idea. They're not capable because their mind is in a death paradigm. A debt and death paradigm. That's where they're at. Everything in our society today is based on sickness, illness, death, and debt. That's it. We do not have a healthcare industry. We have a sickness and death industry. There is no healthcare industry in this country. Well, there is, but it's private, and it's very small, and it's people that actually care about your health. And very few of them are MDs. There are some. But the MDs that are participating in actual healthcare, they're often persecuted. People come after them. How do you spread the message of liberty? Don't talk. Don't talk about the current system. Discuss what the system would be like if the existing system were completely dismantled. Not partially dismantled. Sure, it's very hard to understand how passing a few libertarian-style bills would really change our country for the better because of all the other shit that would prevent it from happening. And what would you do then if you start to take away restrictions that can be advantaged by Exxon but not advantaged by Joe's Oil Exploration Company? Of course the big guys abuse it. And they'll abuse the hell out of it so that you'll put the restriction back in place just in case Joe ever figures out how to get around it. They're okay with it. Stop discussing reforming the system. 
and start talking about building a new way to exist. Start talking about liberty versus libertarianism. If somebody's stuck on a word, use a different word. Talk about the idea and the ideal. And when you're building your life, don't be married to the word libertarian. Seek the meaning of liberty for you. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah.